tonight right now in Metro Rain and one degree. Back with an update at 10 for VOCM News. I'm Brian Medore. VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Monday, November the 14th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and Fonce King is sitting in the producer's chair this morning. You'll be speaking with Fonce when you give us a shout to get in the queue and on the air. If you're in the St. John's Metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. And probably like many of you listening to the program this morning, the power went off when I was in the shower. So fumbling to get myself ready to get in here and get the show off to hopefully a good start this week. And, of course, there's a scheduled power outage in my region coming up tomorrow. Pretty messy weekend in many parts of the province. Lots of rain, lots of snow in certain parts of the province. And you know full well some people got caught off guard without their snow tires on. So it might be time to consider as the weather's taking a very quick turn. And, you know, I feel for the folks, of course, on the southwest coast. And anyone who suffered real big damage in the aftermath of Fiona and with the stories continue and the trauma has not gone away to hear Mayor Brian Buttons uh, talk about it when people hear that there's one storm or another one weather event or another heading their way the anxiety is through the roof so if you're on the southwest coast and I know they were fighting some minor flooding this past weekend feel free to share your story with us here on the program we continue to think about the recovery and the hope to build back a little bit better and safer. All right, a couple of sports notes before we get her going here today. Congratulations to Sean Cleary. Sean Cleary is absolutely one of the finest softball players in the country, maybe one of the finest softball players in the world. He's been named Softball Canada's Men's Fast Pitch Athlete of the Year. He's been a big part of the national team for about a decade. And in the most recent WB, WBSC America's Pan American Championship, which was in Argentina, Cleary, of course, was stellar. He opened up the tournament by pitching a win against the number one ranked Argentinian team. In 28 innings in that tournament, he had 48 strikeouts and a 1.75 earned run average. Absolutely extraordinary. Of course, remember the Galway Hitmen, who just won their eighth national championship as well. He's one of six people from this province has been named to represent Team Canada at the upcoming World Cup, which is going to be in New Zealand. That happens uh, uh, begins on November the 26th. And Blair Bursey, we were keeping our eyes on Blair, of course, Gander native, professional golfer. He's down in the Latin America trying to qualify for the PGA Tour Latin America. He did it. So he came through the final round of 72. He's exempt for the six, first six events of the 12 on the calendar. There's a reshuffle coming in November, but one step at a time, and Blair Bursey is there. Good for you, Blair. Great stuff. Also, this is a great award. Katie Hicks plays soccer for Memorial University. She's the fourth-year player. She just was named U Sports. U Sports is the umbrella organization for university varsity sports here in the country. The U Sports Student Athlete Community Service Award winner. Absolutely tremendous stuff. So she's got a 4.0 GPA. She's a four-time academic All-Canadian. She's been on the Dean's List on a roll four times at Memorial University's Faculty of Science. The Community Award reflects her volunteerism with Big Brothers, Big Sisters, at Ronald McDonald House, at The Gathering Place. She's the third Memorial University female athlete to win this uh, prestigious award. That was Jesse Noseworthy, won it back in 2015, and Samantha Hansford won it in 2010. Congratulations to Katie Hicks. That's really a fantastic recognition for the good work on the pitch and off the pitch. And I guess Katie, like many of you, will be really anxious to get the World Cup of Soccer underway. 
Canada opens up against Belgium, one of the real world title holders, uh, Belgium on November 23rd. So, here we go, Canada. Yesterday was the big reveal. Was it yesterday or Saturday? The big reveal of the 26-man roster representing the country. And people are cautiously optimistic about their chances here. You know, well, we haven't even scored a goal in the World Cup ever. So, we'll see what we can do this time around. Man, the Growlers, what a start to the season. 11 games in, still haven't lost in regulation. Swept the Norfolk Admirals over the weekend. Big crowds, too, which is really encouraging for the players and for the franchise. So they pick it back up. Uh, Maine comes to town on Wednesday for a three-game set before the Growlers hit the road again. But in the bad news on the Growlers front, the Growlers basketball team, after one season, they're folding it up. They're not going to be part of the league, partially because of the lack of amenities at Mons Fieldhouse to accommodate professional sports and professional basketball. So, too bad for the Growlers. And here we are on the radio. Today in history, the BBC first began radio broadcast back in 1922. This is also an interesting one. Every now and then, there's two or three listeners who send me emails periodically about why we're not talking more and more about the possibility of a fixed link between Labrador and the island. The federal liberals have indeed considered it a nation-building project. You know, it's being looked at at the Infrastructure Bank of Canada. We don't know where it's going to go or what the next steps would look like. You have to imagine you go out to the industry to see who can build it, and the proposal, whether it be in the form of a P3, which is always a tricky piece of business, maybe modeling after the Confederation Bridge linking PEI with the mainland, I don't know. But the fixed link is an interesting conversation. It's not just about building that tunnel. The road work on either side would also have to be enhanced to accommodate what people think would be increased traffic flow, goods, visitors, whatever the case may be. So we can talk about that. But it was today in history, 1994, that the channel, the channel tunnel under the English Channel, opened up for public trains in 1994. The Channel. Pretty cool. All right. I suppose you've been chipping away, possibly, at your Christmas shopping. I know we have. A little bit here, a little bit there. Try to spread out the spend. And, you know, there's always the talk about shopping local. And, again, of course, it's your money. You do as you see fit. The online shopping world has exploded over the course of the pandemic. It was always popular, but became even more so when we were what we were doing. You know what we were doing. So the Amazon numbers and Target and Walmart and other online venues, I mean, it's just so immensely popular. But then it comes with some associated risk. And the St. John's Board of Trade is picking up on it. Now, anyone who's ever ordered anything and you track it online and you find out that it's stuck in Dieppe, in <laughs> Dieppe in Moncton. So the Board of Trade, in an effort, tongue-in-cheek, to try to encourage more shopping local, just so you don't have to show up empty-handed because your gift that you purchased for somebody has been indeed stuck in Dieppe. So they've launched this campaign called Stallmark. And they launched it in front of a Hallmark store. So apparently they've done this in conjunction with the town of Dieppe and with Canada Post, not trying to create any enemies, but it is an interesting campaign. It's not the first time they've taken on something like this, but the concept of shopping local, where so much more of the money stays right where you live, right where your friends and family work. Anyway, that's what the Board of Trade is up to. Okay. We've talked about this a couple of times, so we'll keep it going because it's not just unique to Happy Valley Goose Bay, but they do indeed have an issue in that community with public safety, mental health, and addictions. We heard from RCMP Commissioner uh, Brenda Lucky saying that we don't want to criminalize mental health and addictions, but the residents are worried about public safety. So while there's going to have to be some increased measures, social services, what have you, and access to services where people are in that community and throughout the big, the big land itself, you know, those things take time. 
So the residents are absolutely, and I know they're not trying to, you know, paint everyone who's got an addiction or a mental health issue as some sort of violent criminal who is wreaking havoc in the community. They're not saying that at all. They know that there's going to need to be some attention to the folks who are amongst the 80 transient people living on the trail network. But enhanced policing is what they're asking for, and they're absolutely not wrong. So the RCMP stretched pretty thin. And yes, the Minister of uh, Justice, uh, John Hogan, was in the area, in the community last week. And they say they're working towards some solutions. But the immediate solution, of course, has to come with police presence. It doesn't mean that everyone who is living on the trail network needs to be thrown behind bars. That makes no sense. But it does indeed curb any potential violence or criminal activity when there's more police presence. So you can do both at the same time. The fact of the matter is to try to deal with pragmatic long-term solutions for mental health and addictions will, of course, take a lot of community engagement and policy creation and spending of government monies. But right now, the folks in the community are worried. And if you're in Happy Valley Goose Bay, feel free to join us on the program to give us an idea of what you're seeing. It's easy enough for me to read a news story, but it's much more helpful if someone who's in the community would like to check in with the program and just you know, describe what you're seeing and feeling in the community itself. And on this front, you know, sometimes we're quick to throw around labels, right? So if I talk about public safety and incarceration and rehabilitation, sometimes I get very quickly labeled a social justice warrior. And I know when people say that, they're trying to insult me, but I don't take it as such. Let's just stand back and think about it for a second. There's always going to be the need for police. There's always going to be the need for penitentiaries. We just know it to be true. There will always be a criminal element. But just some numbers for consideration. At Correction Services Canada, there's 1.2 staff members per inmate in the country. 1.2 staff per inmate in the entire country. It costs, in the neighborhood on the average, $190,000 per year per male inmate in federal institutions. It costs even more than that for women. I can't really break it down, the specifics as to why that increased cost, but it's in the neighborhood of $225,000 per year. So yes, people will indeed latch on to the tough on crime, enhanced sentencing or what have you. But if you just take those numbers, stand back a second and think, what's the best way for me and you to be safer where we live? What, can we, what do you think we could do with some of that money that could indeed keep some people out of federal penitentiaries as opposed to wait for crimes to be committed through the legal system into the prison so that $190,000 per male inmate does not include any of the costs of the justice system as they proceed through it with their trial and obviously eventual conviction that ends up in a federal prison. You know, and so that's not social justice warrior stuff. If you're fiscally conservative and tough on crime, and look, I see the stories as much as you do. So the guy last week that was released on bail who was part of the home invasions, that infuriates all of us. And then we see some of the slap on the wrist associated with some of the people going through the turnstile of the justice system, and people get frustrated, understandably so. But just think about reducing the number of people in the system, consequently in the prisons, saves us money, keeps us safer. And that is not being a social justice warrior. That's standing back and pragmatically looking at the cost and the cost, not only the dollars and cents, but the cost of public safety. So, again, how much good work do you think we could do in the community to keep us safer and people out of prison when you just look at the absolute cost of the inmates? Anyway, you want to talk about it. 
We can do it. And this story obviously will get a lot of concern for many people and families in the province. Knowing that we've got about a 30% vacancy, job vacancy, of radiation therapists. Make sure I get that right. I think maybe once or twice last week I referred to them as radiation technologists or something, technicians. But the radiation therapists. Consequently, one of the four radiation treatment suites at the Dr. H. Bliss, Dr. H. Bliss Murphy Cancer Care Center in St. John's is closed. Consequently, people are being flown to Toronto for the radiation treatment. So when you get the diagnosis and all that comes with it, and the scare, the anxiety, and the worry, to add to it having to go to Toronto, away from your friends and family, your comfortable surroundings, or more comfortable than it would be in Toronto, this is a huge issue. This is really quite something. Staff normally see between 80 and 100 patients every day. But with these compressed hours and the closure of one of the units, they were treating about 20 to 25% less. And where are those folks going? Toronto. Okay. It looks to me like we have a shortage in just about every single area of healthcare workers. There has been a suite of incentives announced, and there was another one last week for people who are represented by QP and the allied health professionals. We'll see what that does in terms of having more people working in those areas. But is there such a thing as a short-term solution here? Again, for the patients that are being transported to Toronto, we're in a partnership with one of the hospitals there, uh, I can't remember what it's called, the Princess Margaret's Cancer Center. What does that cost, and how could we refocus that monies to try to keep people in the fold? There's no way that the system can handle any other people leaving as a radiation therapist because the problem is already big and bad enough. Apparently, over the course of the last year, seven people have left, two in the last week, and so there we go, 30% job vacancy for radiation therapists. Anyway, the shortages continue. And I do know that the government is throwing around a bunch of incentives and trying to think about how to curb this, but it sort of gives you the feeling of 11th hour, doesn't it? I mean, this is not new. This didn't just start happening. We've been seeing these potential shortages and barriers regarding recruitment and problems with retention for a number of years. So I know that it looks like they're absolutely trying. And, you know, when people say the politicians simply don't care, I get where that comes from. But just think about it in their want and their efforts to be reelected. Number one focus of a politician, get elected. Number two, get reelected. So there's a huge political victory available if they can curb the numbers of people without a family doctor, if we can see an increase of nurse practitioners, if we can see an increase of licensed practical nurses, if we can see an increase of people working in long-term care facilities. You know, so there's a political win there on top of being the right thing to do and the necessary course of action that government needs to take, but if you want to tackle it. And if you're a family member and or one of those patients, please do indeed give us a call here this morning. All right. So there looks like, and we're getting a lot of reports, there's a couple of families in particular that send me updates all the time about what they're seeing in their child's class, their child's school. There seems to be an awful lot of issues regarding cold, maybe flu, respiratory illnesses. So that's obviously a potential problem. The reasons behind it, the debate is ongoing. But when there's a shortage, like for instance with the flu and respiratory illnesses, People are still asking their doctors for antibiotics when, of course, that's not the proper uh, course of treatment, not because I say so, but because the healthcare professionals say so. And you know, like, for instance, there's a shortage of amoxicillin. There's also a shortage of cold medicines. 
So if you're a parent of a young child, we've all lived it, right? When your child gets sick, it's a stressful situation. Now, not just because of a runny nose and a little cough, but when they get sick to the point where you need to go get them medicine or maybe a visit to the Janeway, it's an extremely stressful time. With the shortages, the best course of action that people recommend to me, and I think they're right, is just talk to your pharmacist. Because there may indeed be a, an adult version where the dosage can indeed be appropriate for a child if you have that discussion. There can be alternatives suggested by your pharmacist. So while you go into a potential, uh, while you go into a drugstore and see a shortage on the shelf, don't turn around and walk out and continue on with the stress. You know, don't ask, simply ask the pharmacist if there's any Tylenol, cold and flu behind the counter somewhere. And sometimes there might be. There might be. But the next question is, what else can I do? And they've got answers. They've got solutions for you. So make sure you try to come up with that. How are we doing on the phone this morning, fans? We cannot have a slow Monday because yours truly, tired boy here this morning. All right. So we know that the SEAL Summit took place here in the city of St. John's last week. What comes of it? I don't know. Do more science? Okay, great. But DFO is struggling to get the science done for a variety of stocks, basically because we've got huge problems with some of the science-related vessels, looking for replacement parts and what have you. They missed some of the spring surveys. Looks like they're going to miss some, if not all, of the fall surveys. So while we're all told all the time at every turn to follow the science, the lack of data, no, I know, look, the DFO scientists do their level best. But a scientist can do very little without up-to-date information, up-to-date data about the health of one stock or another. So it gives us the feeling that they might be flying blind. You know, how do we come up with a realistic approach to setting individual quotas and or total allowable catch? And, you know, anecdotal evidence, catch rates, what the fish harvesters are seeing is absolutely part of the story. You know, maybe not incorporated enough when we talk about, for instance, the past mackerel season. But when DFO struggles, now I know they spent some $788 million on three new vessels, one of which the Cabot, the John, the, the uh, CCGS John Cabot, is here in St. John's. But not getting the surveys done means we're not getting the up-to-date data to make those types of decisions. All right, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. Let's get the week off to a flying start that only happens when you give fonts a call and get in the queue. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Well, we all know Bill 20 has made its way through the House of Assembly. Bill 20 is the legislation that, in fact, deals with the amalgamation of all four regional health authorities into one. It got off to a bit of a ragged start. It was announced quite a long time ago, but it wasn't put in the hands of the province's Information and Privacy Commissioner, Michael Harvey, for considerations regarding privacy, because they're talking about the compilation of data, and that's exactly what Mr. Harvey needs to deal with. Join us on line number one to talk about the bill as an independent member of the House from Mount Pearl, Southlands. That's Paul Lane, and good morning, Paul. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Always great to be on. Patty, um, yes, I did want to speak about Bill 20, uh, and, and you are correct that it did pass in the House Assembly uh, last week after uh, a couple of days of debate. We went uh, one night till I think it was 11 o'clock uh, in, at, at night, and uh, the next day we made it quite clear to, uh, to the government, I think, that we were prepared to stay till Christmas, if need be, uh, in order to get this bill right, and uh, I'm glad that... Uh, 
that they sort of took a step back and listened to what we had to say, and we were able to reach a uh, a compromise. But, uh, Paddy, I, I, just to be clear, because I, I think there seems to be a sense uh, put out there, you know, by, by, by media and others that, like the the bill is done. It was it was passed in totality. Just, just to make just to make it clear for everybody, uh, really what was passed the, the bill was indeed passed. But before the bill got passed, there was significant uh, portions of the bill that was actually yanked from the bill to come back to the house uh, when we uh, sit again. So basically, in order to allow uh, the uh, the healthcare authorities to come together, which uh, I, I think all parties and, and, and members ag- agreed with, and it was certainly something recommended by uh, Health Accord uh, NL, Sister Elizabeth and Dr. Parfrey. In order to allow that to happen, uh, the bill was passed with the pieces contained in the bill that would allow the four health authorities to come together. However, uh, there were a number of things that uh, were pulled from the bill. So it was issues, as you uh, mentioned, that uh, the privacy commissioner had, issues around social determinants of health, issues around learning systems and, and the concerns he had around the privacy of, of people's personal health information. So those sections of the bill that he had concerns with were basically pulled from the bill um, and and they will be, they committed to meeting with Mr. Harvey in his office further uh, to, uh, to, to examine those sections and I guess to come up with better wording and so on that he would be comfortable with, and then that would be brought back. The other issue, and the big one for myself and and members of the official opposition and and the NDP, and and of course, Eddie Joyce, my colleague, uh, was the issue around this quality control uh, council. Um, And what was envisioned, um, from from what I can gather, by Sister Elizabeth and uh, Dr. Parfrey around the quality control council, was, was that you would have this independent armed excellent body uh, i'm going to say it's going to be similar uh, i believe they want it to be similar to for example the auditor general as an example uh, and possibly even to have whoever the head of this quality control council would be an officer of the house like the auditor general so that way uh if you know they would be you know obviously you know examining what's happening in our healthcare system and in the same way that the auditor general might do an audit and put out a report publicly for everyone to see what concerns uh, the other general would have in a particular government department, agency, board, or commission. In a similar way, this quality council would do the same thing and would let the public know, um, you know, in by way of report or whatever, what are concerns that they might have in a particular aspect of healthcare. Uh, just we could use um, long-term care as an example because that's a an important topic uh, right now to sort of come to the forefront. Um, so that's that's what was envisioned. What government basically had in the bill was that you had a quality council that was appointed uh, by the minister and by the government uh, that would basically report to the minister, that would uh, submit reports to the minister on what the minister wanted reports on in the form that the minister wanted the data, uh, and it would go directly to the minister and not to the general public. So, you know, if there was things that came up and there was issues there, then, you know, in, in theory, the minister of the day, I'm not saying Minister Osborne would do this now, but the minister of the day could basically hide reports and so on. Um, so that's not what was envisioned. 
that does nothing to, uh, you know, enhance accountability and so on within our healthcare system. So we were very firm on that. So that whole thing now has also been removed from the bill. Uh, there's an all-party committee, including an independent member, which is going to be myself, uh, that's going to examine that whole issue around quality councils and so on. And we are going to come up with new language and so on, which is in the spirit and intent of what the Health Accord NL had envisioned. Sure. Meaning what, we though? bring that back to the House as well. Meaning what? That the report gets tabled in the House of Assembly or the report gets tabled yep. with a yet-to-be-established committee? Or what are you proposing? Well... It's already established that there would be a committee. But what we are saying is that instead of this committee basically submitting reports, you know, upon request of the minister, whatever way the minister wants the reports and whatever the minister wants, and to go directly to the minister, what we're saying is that we would have it whereby this quality council uh, would be almost like an, you know, an officer. And this is yet to be determined yet, but would be like an officer of the House who would report to the House who would table reports to the House and to the general public. So if there's concerns in the healthcare system, it doesn't go directly to the minister who can take that report and hide it or do whatever. It goes directly to the House and to the people. It's tabled publicly so we all know what are the issues. And, of course, like the other general, if, if, if the other general right now makes uh, reports, for example, to the public and they make recommendations saying, you know, you need to do this, this, and this, and this, and so on, well, you will quite often see the Auditor General at some point in time come back with a subsequent report saying, here's what I recommended. Did the government do it? Yes or no? You know, and, you know, you've heard these reports. So this has been 100 percent done and this is 50 yeah. percent complete and all that. So we want to see that same kind of accountability as it applies to health care. Uh, what the government was proposing is that this council just basically submits reports uh, to the minister uh, is not publicly tabled, is not tabled in the House. We don't know what it is, and uh, we might never find out. So there's no accountability in that regard. So this is so this section of the Act has also been pulled, as I said, and there will be an all-party committee that will be looking at changing, hopefully, the language and so on to make it more acceptable and more in line with what Sister Elizabeth and Dr. Parfrey uh, had recommended. So uh, I guess my overall point is that while the bill uh, was indeed passed last week, there were substantial pieces of the bill that have been removed that will be coming back to make it stronger legislation, or at least we believe stronger legislation, for the people of Newfoundland and Labrador. And that's why we held it up in the House uh, for as long as we did, and, and that's why we were prepared to keep it there, like I said, till Christmas if need be, because this is probably the most important piece of legislation should have been bill one in my mind in terms of the signature bill for this uh, administration this time around but anyway that's besides the point Mm -hmm. it is probably the most important bill that will come before the house going to have significant impact on our health care system and it's important that we get it right and there's accountability built in and every single time these things should absolutely be vetted through uh, michael harvey's office and tabled to the house of assembly people should be reporting to the house of assembly just like the seniors advocate does just like the child and youth advocate does just like the auditor general does this is why we how we can ensure transparency and public discourse because if we don't even know if the report exists much like that citizens rep report which has kind of got me frustrated as well you know now that there seems to be some backlash coming towards bradley moss which is completely unwarranted and completely unfair we can leave that for another day but fair enough uh when the 
proposed amendments take shape, I'd be curious to have you back on to see exactly what they look like so that we can evaluate how that debate goes in the House of Assembly and how and why one proposed amendment may be rejected or accepted because this is part of the stuff that, you know, for many of us, even those with the ear to the ground and trying to stay on top of things, when legislation and proposed amendments aren't publicly discussed, we have no way to know whether or not we can think that the government or the opposition is on the right track or simply the theater of politics or it's pragmatic discussion. So that's where I think we are all better served. I uh, appreciate the time, Paul. i got to get off to another call, but uh, thanks for this. No problem, Patty. Thanks for having me on. And, and, and you're right. It is so important to have that. And, and if you just look at the process where, for example, you just mentioned Michael Harvey, he raised these very serious concerns publicly, which caused government to pause and to uh, and to make changes and and so on to this important piece of legislation. Uh, he was able to do that because he is an independent officer of the House who is legislatively protected and has a duty to do so. We're suggesting that the same thing should apply to whoever is going to be managing this quality council to when they're looking at aspects affecting our health care system, that, that, right. that individual would have that same power as Mr. Harvey to come forward and let the public know what's going on and not allow government to simply hide reports. Appreciate this. Thank you. Thank you, Patty. All the very best. You too. Bye-bye. All right. Well, I take uh, Ellen before we get to the break. What do you think, Fonts? Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about a seniors club, an issue out in Cornerbrook. Then we're going to talk about uh, MNL's recent leadership or summit or upcoming leadership summit. Don't go away. Join Brian Medor weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Ellen, you're on the air. Hello. Hello there. You hear me? I can hear you loud and clear. Oh, no. I'm calling, Patty, and let you know that I received a letter in the, from the Echo Club in Cornerville. Okay. It was in the post office shop of Strugmark. I didn't know it was a letter, of course, because I got the card in the mail and said it was a parcel at shop of Strugmark. I had to pick it up a certain time, which I did pick it up. When I got it, I opened it up and seen that was on it. I was blown away. What was it? I was bud from the seniors club for saying things to the to the players, and my attitude. They were tired of it. They couldn't put up with it anymore. I was blamed for throwing my walker across the floor, which I did not do. I am a very manly person. I was reared up that way. I never said nothing to the card players, which I got blamed for. I was bullied in the seniors club for no reason. They had a meeting down there, and they all recited. They all put up their hands. I don't know who they were. I was not there. I was not fronted with nothing that went on that they had against me in the seniors club. And I'm barred from the club. I'm 89 years old. They didn't give you a chance to defend yourself, Ellen. I never got a chance to defend myself. I never got a chance to find out what was going on. And one of the members went across, went to every table down there one night and told everybody in the card game that they didn't want to play cards with me. I could not find out the problem, and I, and I still don't. And I don't know why. And when anything was said and done, I got the blame for it. They get me going, and they say I was blamed for going 20 minutes to 5, which I did not do. And then were, I got a little bit upset and this and that. I got a little bit of a temper that I can't control sometimes. 
And when I say something, or he says something, I just play for it. I just playing for a lot that went on in their senior shop, and I did not do it. Ellen, um, so did you lose your temper? Sometimes I got to control it, but I don't say no nasty words. I don't use no foul language like that. I mean, I don't get crazy. But Paul Langley said been used in that club, and I've been to the table and heard it, but I never, ever did it. So what are they saying that you said to another player? So someone accused you of going 20 without the five. So for starters, how did they know that? And secondly, what did what are they saying that you said about it? Like tell someone to shut up or you're a liar, or what are they saying that you said? Blame me for, for things that I'm not doing. Okay. The people are getting toward my attitude and all this going on. I mean, my attitude is as good as anybody else's. I don't, I'm not equal to people. I don't say stuff to people, but I'm getting blamed for it. Well, I'm sorry, I'm sorry to hear that happen to you because I'm, I'm sure you'd like to be able to get out of the house and go to the club for a game of growl. Like well, I'm people. 89 years old yes, and my son works, I mean, he works 12 hour shifts and whenever he's available, he takes me to the car games. So I look forward to going out and having the game of cards. Uh-huh. I know how to play my cards. I play cards with my dad when I was 10 years of age. Yes, ma'am. So have you got back in touch with them and asked if you can have a conversation about this and get be allowed to come back to the club? What's What's going on? I don't know. I never hear from nothing from them. And they never, they don't even I phone them up or see what's going on. They won't even answer the phone. Well, if anyone who's belonged to that particular club in Corner Brook would do Ellen the courtesy of simply speaking with her to find out what exactly she's been accused of, why they've taken this decision, so that, you know, we can get all the cards on the table, pardon the pun. So hopefully someone listening to the program this morning has belonged to that club, and they will either take your call or give you a call so we can figure this out. Well, I hope they do, because, I mean, that's something I never done. It was showing my walker across the floor. Yeah, if someone who needs I a walker. I to show that walker. No, showing it. Yeah, I understand. And everything is done as I'm doing it. I, I'm not doing anything. The, 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 the members sat at the table there one night. I went 20 on clubs, and nobody did because you never had that much to go on. Yeah. And so I said, well, I said, I'll play, I say 20 on clubs. Which I did. Picked up the kitty, and I got a couple in the kitty. And she looked at me, and she said, you got the five in the kitty. Which she wasn't supposed to say that to me. Well, what did you have when you went 20? Pardon? What did you have in your hand when you went 20? I had the five, and I had two more. Okay. And I got one in the kitty. I had five trumps at the time. I, got, I made 25 on that. But she wanted to say I went with the five, but I didn't. And she even told the treasurer, the woman that takes care of the miners, she even told her that I went 20 but with the five. I couldn't play a game of cards down there civilized for the last uh, three weeks or more. And I was obviously bullied for what I did. Yeah, I've said here that this is a... Uh going the way it is. Ellen, do me a favor. See if you can get in touch with someone at the club to see what can be done here. And certainly, if you are a listener, like I mentioned, please just have the conversation with Ellen so we can figure this stuff out because, you know, an 89 years of age lady who likes to get out for a game of cards, now that's gone by the wayside because someone was crooked and has x-ray vision and saw the five and the kitty. I mean, let's, let's see if we can figure it out. Ellen, keep me in the loop. Let me know what happens, will you? 
Well, so apparently they're not going to talk to me. I'm going to tell you now. I mean, I can phone them and they'll hang up on me. And I can call them till the cars come home. It's not going to happen. Well, now, fingers crossed. To me. I hope that changes. But let me know. Let me know one way or the other, will you? I will call you. And so I will call you back soon, uh, probably soon. Okay, do that. You, can I do that? Yes, you can. Yeah, okay. Thanks for listening to me. You're welcome, Ellen. Take good care. Okay. All Bye-bye. Uh, boy, oh, boy. How does anyone know if someone picked up the five in the giddy? Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the Director of Advocacy and Communications at Municipalities Newfoundland and Labrador. That's Dr. Deatra Walsh. Dr. Walsh, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Not too bad at all. Thanks. How about you? I'm great, thanks. Thanks for having me on. I, we've got a lot of exciting things happening in the sector as it relates to leadership, and I, I really am happy to chat with you a bit more about it as well. And I know it did take place at the most recent conference. I was a little bit uh, tongue-tied going to the break. So tell us what happened with this uh, a value we bring. Yes, absolutely. Not a, not a problem. So we had a leadership summit uh, for women and gender diverse individuals on November 2nd, and that was sort of a precursor to the MNL 2022 conference trade show in AGM. And it was an absolutely fabulous event. Um, we've, in fact, changed the name of the leadership summit to make the language more inclusive and really following the lead of some of our fabulous partners out here in the community, like Equal Voice NL. Um, and at that leadership summit, uh, we had about over 40 people, um, and it was at that summit that we launched our new project that we're doing in um, partnership with Equal Voice NL um, called The Value We Bring. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about that project, too, because it is really, really exciting. Um, and people can find out online. Just go to our socials or go to MakeYourMarkNL.com. Uh, effectively, this is sort of a continuation of the Make Your Mark campaign that we did last year in advance of the 2021 municipal elections. And we really noted that while that was great and more women ran in the the elections, we had lots of young people running, we also knew that we needed to bring people's intersecting identities to the table. And what I mean by that is we have a lot of folks out there in the sector who, um, who identify in a variety of ways, and we recognize that bringing those identities to the table and amplifying what they are um, really shows people about the value that those perspectives bring. I'm always at a loss when people push back against these types of initiatives by saying, you know, we're going too far, and, you know, how and why is this necessary? When, in fact, if you don't have voices that are representative of the population at large, how can you possibly be considering everything? Because I have a different perspective on the world versus your perspective on the world versus someone else who might be uh, gender divergent has a perspective on the world, how it impacts them. So you really need to have, whether it be in elected bodies and or these types of panels or organizations like yours, if you're not hearing from all hands, you can't possibly make good decisions. Well, that's right. And, and in that first episode, we heard from Judy White, who's the Indigenous co-chair of uh, Equal Voice NL, talking about bringing her Indigenous identity as a woman to the table and how that's meaningful. Certainly, we have a lot of people in our municipal leadership community who are part of the 2SL, GBT, QIA plus community or the queer community. We want to hear their voices, too. We, th- there's no need to have silenced voices around the table. And if we don't make that space and talk about it, then people can't see themselves in the municipal spe- sector, nor can they really, you know, um, 
uh, provide us a fulsome and authentic picture of who they are. And that's what's really important. Um, at the end of the, the launch or the, the launch of that first episode, we also held a panel discussion. And in that panel, we had Courtney Clark from Equal Voice NL. Of course, Judy White was there with us. Uh, Leisha Tory, who is a recent delegate at Future of the Vote, also heading up the Period Priority Project. Tanya Heath from the St. John's Status Women Council. And we had uh, Charlotte Gauthier, who's the deputy mayor of the town of Gillums. And she's the first trans counselor in our province, you know. So having those voices around the table to talk about the importance of this was absolutely essential. So then the next important question is, what's next steps? Yes, right. Well, I mean, there's a couple things. And I should note that this project will, will roll out a number of episodes over the next six months. It's funded through the Federation of Canadian Municipalities, and we've also gotten support from the uh, Department of Municipal and Provincial Affairs. But this is the start, I think, and the continuation, really, of important conversations in our sector. So the next day, we actually had a, a gender panel with the whole of sector. A lot of the um, folks in the Women's Caucus said, we need to talk about this as a whole. Um, and one of the key things we're doing now is doing essential work on male allyship. We had so many men stand up in that uh, panel to identify themselves as allies. And in fact, I mean, and this is something to be celebrated um, FCM put out a call uh, recently for uh, male allyship training because it's not always men want to support, make a difference, but they don't necessarily know all the tools that they need to do that. Um, so in that call, which was effectively creating that training opportunity, um, we had such an overwhelming response from Newfoundland and Labrador that FCM is going to offer a male allyship training here in Newfoundland and Labrador for those who are interested in it. And I think that's incredible. I think we're at a real pivotal change point in our sector where we're all going to stand up together and support one another. And I, for one, am so proud of everyone. I mean, I had conversations about the patriarchy with so many counselors last week or when we were at the conference. And, you know, talking openly about that is, is really important. And people want to talk about it. They're not shying away from the conversations. And that's what matters. Absolutely. You know, and I think if we extend it to the fact that you had to have big campaigns at MNL to try to encourage people to even want to run for elected positions as a member of a town council. Many times that's a volunteer position. So if you don't see yourself reflected around that table, why would you want to be the first one to dip your toe in? You know, we know, thankfully, there are people who are breaking glass ceilings. There are people who are breaking down the barriers, and that's helpful. But when you have an umbrella organization like yourselves taking these things on, it probably will see uh, an uptick in numbers of people running for council positions to uh, represent their portion of the community, who they are, and people who are like-minded or like them. I'll give you the final word, Deatra, before they flag me off to the break. Yes, absolutely. And I, you make a really good point. And I'd also like to say, not only bringing people to the table, encouraging them to be there because they can see themselves in the voices that are, are represented and, and indeed making new space with that, but also ensuring that that space around those tables is safe. And that's so critical. If we really want people to come to the table as volunteers, we got to make sure that they're not getting there and feeling fearful. You know, no bullying, no harassment, none of that stuff. We need safe spaces so that leadership and governance can actually take place effectively. Appreciate Thanks so much, Patty. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you so You're much. Welcome. Bye now. All right, bye-bye. It's Deatra Walsh from Municipalities Newfoundland and Labrador. Let's take a break. When we come back, Elizabeth is there to talk about a climate summit. I guess that's COP27, is it? All right, don't go away. Join Brian Medor weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. 
This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Elizabeth. You're on the air. Hey, Patty. How are you doing? Not too bad, thanks. How are you doing? Not too bad. Thank you very much. I won't keep you long. I know you're extremely busy, but... No worries. You can certainly correct me if I'm wrong. I greatly appreciate it. What I'm calling about is um, the world leaders and dignitaries and whatnot are going basically around the world. They're in Egypt. They're going... They're in... Bali now or somewhere, I don't know where they're to, but anyway, the long and short of it is, with all this talk on climate change, wanting people to, you know, get electric cars, save on emissions and all this stuff, and they're flying off around the world in these great big airplanes, I don't think that's doing a whole lot for the climate change. You don't think there's a need for, like, for instance, leaders of the G20 and the G7 to actually get together face-to-face for these types of discussions? Oh, indeed I do. Mm -hmm. But I also believe if they want us to do our part, then I think maybe someone could come up with something to rectify whatever they're burning in these planes to get them where they're going to. It tells you how much I know about what's in a plane. Oh, no worries. I mean, there... There's a couple of areas where people, I think, are fair enough uh, criticizing these congregations. You know, whether it be at the World Economic Forum and all those private jets and the pictures of them that we see parked on the uh, tarmac, fair enough. Yeah. You know, for many of these attendees, whether it be at COP27 in Egypt and or the G20 uh-huh. Summit in uh, Indonesia, right. you know, I do see the need to get together face-to-face for some of these big issues and these big problems and the leaders of the G20 countries. Uh-huh. And all, what could what could be done? I mean, like many of us, when the pandemic began, and it wasn't simply about uh, climate change, it was about a virus, is we did a lot of things in front of our computer screen. Is that an appropriate approach for these types of officials to take? I don't know. I see the merit in getting it together. Maybe that can be reduced versus so much of the travel that we do see being undertaken by some of these folks. But I don't pretend to know the right answer. When it comes to uh, passenger travel, right pardon me? You always know the right answer. I'm not sure on this one, because I don't know <laughs> if we can avoid having the heads of state actually face-to-face for some of these discussions. But it's interesting that you bring up flight. If you have a full 737 going yeah. from St. John's to Calgary, for instance, yeah. you actually have less emissions than if every passenger drove their own car to Calgary. So there is okay. some consideration regarding emissions and air travel. Uh, and uh, that that thing has been proven many, many times. But the issue regarding G20 and COP27s, I'm not really sure. You know, COP27, we probably don't need to be sending hundreds of people to an environmental summit. I think the number of Canadian representatives that made their way to that particular gathering was somewhere like 327. That's too many. There's no need of that. I know there's a need for people to hear what's being discussed and understand what they can or should be doing in their own community, but 327 sounds like a lot to me. So on that front, people who criticize that, I think they have a point. For the leaders, I'm not sure what else they could do. Yeah, I'm not sure either. It's just that I find it ironic. They're going here, they're talking climate change and all this, and you see these huge jets flying in. And like you say, and all these people on board, like, really? Do they all have to be there? It's a fair question. The jets are going to be flying, whether it's one or two people or 302. You know. Yeah. Well, you know, if if everyone who went from Canada was all on the one aircraft, that's one thing. If they were on 25 different aircrafts, that's another conversation. 
Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and I like I say, I'm not that knowledgeable in this area at all. I just found it ironic that they're wanting us to do our thing, and here they are doing what they're doing. I don't say that it's not important what they're doing. I understand. It is important yep. what they're doing. It's, I'm wondering if there could be another means of doing it or another whatever. Yep. I, I don't know. Point taken, you know, and again, the summary for me is if if everyone travels together, there's an argument to be made for why. If everyone travels on their own arrangements and however many different flights, then there's a, di- a different conversation that we have to have. And look, you're right. There's a certain amount of hypocrisy associated with some of this stuff. There just is. It's mm-hmm. one thing to tell me what I should be doing. It's quite another to lead by example, right? So, yeah. Yes. Uh, point taken here, Elizabeth. I appreciate this. Okay, thank you very much for your time, Patty. Greatly appreciate it. Always my pleasure. Take good care. You too. Alrighty. Bye bye. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye. Bye. Uh, yeah, and so lots of uh, feedback on Ellen's call. If she's got the issue with the seniors club out in Cornerbrook and she's been banned, you know, the allegation is that she went f- uh, 20 without the five. And, you know, a few emailers saying, I've got myself in the middle of a controversy now. So be it. You want me to go a step further? If you're playing partners, 120s, game of growl, Two on two, you should be able to go five without uh, twenty without the five anyway. You can still get twenty without the five. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're speaking with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Jim, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you? Very well. How about you, Jim? Uh, not too bad. A little bit rainy out here in paradise. Patty? Yes, sir. I'll, I'll just get right to why I'm calling. Okay, I'm actually looking at your VOCM. Uh, you probably read it. Okay, respiratory illness and so on. You know what I'm talking about, right? I think so. Yeah, the poll that they put out. Okay. Oh, so the question today. Okay. a clear divide. Okay, right now the poll is sitting at uh, 44% for yes and and 40% for no and 16% are undecided, if you will. Now, so right now, okay, Patty, I'm gonna I'm just gonna have a little bit to say and then I want to get your thoughts or whatever on it. Okay, is that okay with you? Fire away. Okay, so I've been uh, watching watching this and there's been a lot of talk about putting masks back on, especially the kids in school. Now, no government officials other than, okay, no premiers. The, the prime minister won't even talk about it. You know, premier or prime minister Trudeau, he will not talk about, he won't answer any questions on So I'm getting the feeling that the premiers do not want to touch this. And and it's only one top doctor is talking about it, and that's the doctor in Ontario uh, and and so on. So to me, okay. Now this is just my opinion, Patty. Okay, there's 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 two sides to de- this debate. So it seems to me that this is not really backed up backed up by science, only political science. No, that's just my opinion. Okay. So and uh, so just wanted to get your thoughts on that, and maybe other people should should stop start talking about it as well. Yeah, I mean, remains to be seen what Dr. Fitzgerald or anyone else will say about masking. In this province, I do know that the Chief Medical Officer of Health in Ontario, a guy whose name is uh, Dr. Kieran Moore, 
You know, what's curious is I think we're going to see a change in the language. Mandate has been a political flashpoint. So there, I think he's going to say something like encourage or to, for some businesses to be able to require a mask, maybe some move in the schools. I don't know. I haven't seen the announcement yet, but we know something's coming today in Ontario. Uh, there is science behind masking. Uh, there's no silver bullet. I think that's one thing that's become a really frustrating part of protection and public health is there's not one thing that's going to cure all ills. It's just not. When the combination of washing your hands or using sanitizer or wearing a mask and uh, physical distancing and vaccination, things in combination are working, not one thing on a standalone basis. So that's where I think the conversation really got derailed is, you know, if, if all of a sudden the big uptake in the vaccination and COVID goes away, it's not the case. The, the effectiveness of a vaccine wanes. We know it to be true. So what's the specific question you'd like me to try to answer regarding a mask? Because, I mean, the evidence well, is clear. Uh, I, mean, I could give you my opinion on it, but I, I, it's gonna, my opinion is going to be different than yours. Like, for example, okay, if I'm allowed to say I don't think children, school children, should be forced to wear a mask all day long, like up to seven or eight hours, whatever, in school. Because if anybody, you know, they are the ones least likely to to catch COVID or and uh, they're, you know, they're going to be able to fight it off better than, say, someone my age who's in his 60s, okay? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I had COVID, okay? And uh, it, it wasn't a good experience. No, I didn't, I didn't do the vaccine or anything like that. I, that I, I took a chance on it and whatnot, and I survived it. Okay, no, it wasn't, it wasn't good. It wasn't good. I'm going to tell you right now. <laughs> but, but my concern, Patty. Okay, adults, if if they if if they choose to wear a mask, that's fine. I have, I don't have, you know, if they choose to wear a mask indoors or outdoors, I don't have a problem with that. It's forcing the kids, okay, the children, that have no say over their own, you know, own, their own bodies, they have no say over wearing a mask. If school boards decide to do it, then it's done. And I think right now, okay, from what I see, from what I've been reading online and, and stuff like that, that this is going to cause a clear divide. It already has. Uh, just a few things. So the mask decision in Ontario is being driven in large part with the overwhelming of the children's hospitals. They've cancelled non-urgent surgeries there to accommodate very sick patients, and it's not all just COVID. There's a variety of respiratory issues that children can face. And yes, it's absolutely true. Children are better positioned to fight off the severe symptoms of the virus. We also know that repeat infections has a long-term detrimental impact on your health. So I don't think any of this is simple. But I'm, I've long been really confused as to how and why masks have been so controversial. I kind of understand the conversation regarding vaccinations and people's weariness of getting one. I, I had the two in the primary series and I had a Moderna booster. I haven't had a fourth shot as of yet. And I'm thinking about it. But the mask issue, I've just been really baffled as to why that has been such a massive big deal in the general public. If it's about the length of time that children have to wear them in school, we can have that conversation. If people are all of a sudden uh, freaking out politically because you have to wear them to go to the grocery store, I don't really understand that, to be honest with you, because we know, yeah. and you talk about science, if, every, if all hands are masked, it does reduce the potential for transmission. It just does. People say, well, you know, the, the size of the micron of the virus, and, you know, it just pen- goes through the mask. You also need yeah, well, an aerosol. Okay. T- what? 
I, I'm sorry. That's okay. There's two sides to that debate, okay? There's what? two sciences to that debate, okay? This is what science is about. Science is not perfect. So, you know, and right now, okay, there are, are, are doctors that are scientists that are being stifled. Their voices are being muzzled by uh, governments or whatever or the agenda. It seems like uh, media, the media, they're, they're pushing the one side of, you know, they're pushing the agenda and they want to get everybody masked up and stuff like that. Like I said, and you just mentioned then, putting on a mask to pop in Marie's store for five minutes is not a big deal. No. I can do it no problem. Yeah. But my problem is, okay, and I'm not, I'm not a parent. I don't have a child in school. I, I, I really feel for the children that are being forced to wear this. Now, the cloth mask and stuff like that, it creates a barrier. But what does that barrier do? Stop you from, from exhaling properly like you're supposed to? Like we, we all have toxins inside of our bodies and we're suppo- our breathing allows that to come out, for example. Now, I'm not a doctor anything like that. I've done my own research, Patty. Okay. Now, as far as we know, the safest mask right now is the N95. That's right. Now I've put on the N95. Okay. And I'm going to tell you, it's, they're rather difficult to breathe through. The issue with a mask and whether or not it can uh, capture all of the virus, look, For the droplets to be carried any distance, it requires the moisture with your speech and your breathing. So if it does indeed trap some of the moisture, because if anyone's worn a mask for any length of time, you know full well it can indeed get moist uh, before long, which just kind of proves that it is trapping some of the virus and consequently reducing the likelihood of transmission by whatever percentage or whatever number. I don't know what exactly it might be. But it, it just does. I mean, the proof has been pretty clear. When we were masked uh, and physical... Uh, well, okay, just one now, second. If you're wearing the N95, obviously it's a better seal and stuff like that. So that moisture that you're supposed to be letting out, you're bringing that right back in. Now, no. one thing we've learned from the pandemic, and I actually like this, okay, Patty, is that the, the six feet distance. I've, I've, I've always hated when people, like say for example, pulling out a lineup at the bank or the grocery store, I've always hated when people are right up in my bubble, if you will, or my space, okay? So the one thing that I see good coming out, that, that came out of this is, okay, actually there's two things, okay? People are sort of staying away, you know, like keeping their distance from each other, social distancing, if you will, and People got have gotten used to washing their hands. Okay, washing your hands helps. Okay, like for example, if I was driving a taxi and you got in with your, you're going to give me some money, and if you were washing your hands all the time, then you would reduce the chances of giving me something that you you got because you're clean over your hands. So that's two things that I I absolutely agree with. But what Jim, but then? Jim, everything in conjunction has proven to work. I don't know how we're still having disputes about what does and does not work here at this point. We're two and a half years into this. When all of the public health measures were being abided by, it doesn't make anyone a sheep because public health is exactly that. It's public. It's a shared responsibility. So when all of the things were done at the exact same time, it was crystal clear that it reduced the likelihood of transmission. I don't know how and why anyone could debate that. There's no two sides to that. There just simply is not. So... 
whether Actually, Patty, there is two there's sides. not. You're only looking at one side of the debate, okay? No, I'm looking the at that, no. the side that you agree with. No, no, there no, no, no. Out there that I've looked at the other side of the debate. I look at both sides. Yeah, you can look at both sides if you like, though, Jim. But the fact is, when we were testing the way we were, now, we don't even know what, how much COVID is out there. We really don't. They're doing, you know, some people are reporting the results of, the, of their rapid test. Public health is monitoring wastewater, those types of things. But we don't know what's out there. We have no earthly idea. But when we were testing with the old protocols, it was clear that if all of those measures were taken at the same time, it reduced the likelihood of, of infection. There's no two sides to that. This is not about liberals or conservatives. or not, It's just not about any of those things. The numbers were what the numbers were. There are stories out there, and there are research papers, and I, I can share whatever you want with you. And this is not coming from liberal think tanks or some socialist entity or nothing. These are just research uh, facilities and academics who do this for a living. They're the people who are the actual experts. Not me. I've never pretended to be an expert in this stuff. But when all the measures were taken at the exact same time, it did absolutely curb transmission. It curbed the number of cases. It curbed the number of people in the hospital. It curbed the number of people dying. That's the facts. Whether or not people like that okay. is I, not I, really okay. up to me. That, that, okay, Patty, that's your facts. But I've got my facts, too. Okay? Say, that, say what? That, that, that disagree with your facts. And, and, and these facts aren't coming from me. These, are coming, these facts are coming from also studies that aren't recognized Just, by the governments. Or, it, 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 it's like... Jim, quick question. You know, so why, you, why can't, we, why can't the, the top doctors and, 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 and such and government allow a public debate on the issue well we're having okay. one here just one second you well, actually you and I are having one. jim and jim nobody's going to listen to what i gotta say jim right? hold on so if you can if you say you have a study that shows that when we publicly distance we use hand sanitizer war masks and a certain level of vaccination uh all of those things were taken at the same time if you have a study that shows that it increased transmission please share it with me i've never seen anything like that well, I'll tell you what, Patty. Yeah. The thing about it is, okay. Now, you, I know you're still going to come out. I, I can, I can send you tons and tons of studies that were done on on mask wearing and stuff like that, and all of them disagree with what you just said. No, no. Uh, but I, you, you're Jim, still, you're still entitled to your opinion, okay? But you, am I. at least listen to the opinion that I actually offered versus what you want to hear. What I said. I, I have listened to it. Now, now. What you've been talking about, uh, Patty, I have read not thousands of articles. I'm not going to be retarded here and all, okay? Yeah, but I, I have watched the debate over the last two years, okay? Jim, if you focus and, only on the masks, you're missing my point, my opinion. was not one thing alone, which I've said many, many times to you, and I don't know why you can't hear it that way. There's no one measure. There's no silver bullet. There's no one public policy that has been proven to show any reduction in transmission. What I said was is that things in conjunction are crystal clear. They did work to reduce the, uh, the level of transmission in the public. There's no study that contradicts that, none. So it's not one study about just about a mask. It's not just one study about a vaccine. It's not just one study about six feet apart for inside of 15 minutes. It's all of those things. That's always been what I've said. I've never said anything different than that from the, the entirety of this very frustrating pandemic. So it's not just about masks for me. It's not. Because that's not the opinion okay. that I offered you. You know, okay, Patty, I, I mean, you probably missed what I said. There's a couple of things that I did, I actually do agree with, and that's the social distancing and everybody washing their hands, okay? I, you know, I, 
to convince the public to, you know, uh, you know, and okay. okay. If you wear a mask and you're chock full of the flu or cough or whatever, and you go into a store, that mask will create a barrier so you don't, you know, cough your stuff or sneeze your stuff on on the person that's serving you or the customer that's picking up an item, okay. item next to you. Yes, I agree with all that stuff, okay? But kids are separated in school. That There's a certain amount of space between each desk, or there was when I went to school. There's not, Jim. Like there's not. Now, we, we, we since found out, okay, first of all, it was six feet, you know, social distancing. Then there was three, and now we find out right from the CDC website that it was never a proven science. Proximity to each other obviously counts. Oh, I believe it does. Well, because, I mean, it's traveling in the air. The further away I am from somebody who may be carrying the virus or a cold or whatever respiratory issue, the further I am away from that person, reduce the likelihood of me catching what you got. I mean... Absolutely. It, it just Absolutely. does. And, Jim, and, I, and, I, I do have to go, but this is a very quick question. Well, and Daddy, hope, Daddy I, I, could carry on the, I could carry on this debate with you, okay? Well, f- for, what, for what purpose, though? Exactly, because you clearly, you are one-sided on this issue, and that's the bottom line. You are on the side of the government agenda. That's but what's the agenda? I've always been confused by that, too. What's the end goal of an agenda that says wear a mask when you go grocery shopping? What is that agenda? It, it's all part of one large circle, okay? Uh, it's to, all part of... One, what's the, the end goal? Patty, Patty, the mask, in my, my, my opinion, was a control device. It was a test to see how much the government can, could control the government. That's my opinion. But so they withdrew it, and it hasn't been brought back. And so what did the government prove by uh, the limited amount of time people wore a mask? See, that's where I get really confused with this stuff is control what? What are they controlling? Patty, the reason, the reason you're confused is you're not willing to go look at the other side of the debate. Oh, okay? I've seen. So I've that's seen. why you're confused. Jim. I look at both, I look at both sides. It's ridiculously you unfair. You are unwilling to look at the other side. It's ridiculously unfair. There's been... All of those debates have happened on the show. I have read as much as anybody has on this issue for two and a half years. Just, I just don't know why people say that to me. You, so it's fine for you to have your opinion, but it makes me a bad guy to have my own opinion. See, no, man, no, how Patty, does that work? I, I, made, I made this clear. No, you, you didn't, Jim. Start. You're tiptoeing you're around it. Your opinion. You're tiptoeing around it. As am I. You're saying that I'm a, just so, some sort of mouthpiece for the government, so you're not saying that it's okay for me to have my opinion. You're very clearly no, I'm saying that I'm being a government mouthpiece. Okay. So you got to remember, you have a large audience, okay? You have the capacity to change the minds of other people, all based on the government agenda. People like me don't have a voice. Well, it's a funny that thing, we, you know. Like, for instance. So my, that, okay, before, before you let me go, my question to you and your audience is, why can't we have a public debate on this? Okay? Why won't the top doctors allow both sides to come in and let's have a debate? That's my question. Okay. You have a good day, Patty. You too, Jim. Take care. Bye-bye. Uh, break time. When we come back, Ron Zero wants to talk about the increase of the old age security. Don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM.
This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go. Line number three. Good morning, Ron. You're on the air. Yes, Patty. Uh, the first thing i got to say to you is God bless your patience. Uh, I, I was waiting to get on there, and I coughed while I was waiting. And my wife said, uh, my God, Ron, she said, don't go coughing after that phone call. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what I find to be remarkable is, you know, the folks who want to, the, the whole quest for freedom and opinions should be heard, well, they don't really mean that. They just think that only their opinion can be heard. It's just remarkable, the emails that came in after that call. So we heard him out, and we had a conversation. And then, of course, my opinion is not welcomed, only his is. You know, which one is it, folks? Do we want everyone to have an opinion and to be able to share it and have a discussion? Or do you only want to hear from people that are like-minded? It's, yeah. it's been remarkable the last couple of years, got to say. It's a good debate, but is, you know, there's always going to be debates about everything. No matter and that's fine by me. i got no problem with that. No, 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 that's great. That's, and for a guy that doesn't have a voice, you certainly gave him his voice this morning, for yeah, sure. sure. But anyway, the reason I call, I'm, I'm sort of phoning for a friend here. My sister-in-law texted me last night, yeah. she's around, and she's working with the provincial government. She said, is the eligibility for old age security going up to 67? And I said to her, no, that was on the table back like 10 years ago. And then it was rescinded by the pre by this government. Am I correct in saying yeah, that? Yeah, there was there was lots of talk about it, right? Moving from sixty five to sixty seven. Yeah. Uh, it hasn't come to pass. It isn't happening. There's been no legislation tabled down that front. It's been no more than a discussion, as far as I can tell, and as far as I can find out. The big controversy in old age security was that the ten percent increase was only for folks seventy five plus, but eligibility age of eligibility has not changed. Yeah, because I think what she looked up, just for any listeners that are listening to what I'm saying today, is that I think she looked up, and you know, she works as a provincial government employee, and it's all the buzz in the office on Friday, and that. And I think someone looked up on a site, and I think the original plan was that it was going to start increasing in 2023, I, I think. But if you look up on some sites online, because I looked it up there, and you got to be careful what you're looking at here online, obviously, but. And there's a reference to it increasing April 1st of 2023. But I don't think that's actually on the official government website. No. Well, if we're talking about the 10% increase, that actually started in July. Yeah, no, not the 10% increase. I'm talking going from age 65 to 67 for your eligibility. Yeah, I've read it too. But there's been nothing on the floor of the House of Commons or any legislation that I know of, Ron, that has made that a fact. So yeah. that's all I can say from based on what I've read about all-age security, both the 10% increase and eligibility age uh, changes. It hasn't happened. We've actually asked, I can't remember who was on here that we asked about that, that particular thing, and yeah. they say they weren't going to be, that wouldn't be tabled at this moment in time. So I don't think anything has changed, and when and if that does, we'll be happy to, and of course we will talk yeah. about it. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure she's a nape, so they should be able to tell her too, so, yep. you know. And uh, one last thing, Lupe, not to keep, keep you too long. No problem. When I was getting squared away for this call, I, I heard you saying about Mrs. getting banned from playing cards. Is it, was that, Were you joking? Or? No, a lady called from Cornerbrook. Her name was Ellen. She's 89 years of age. She got a letter in the mail that says she was no longer welcome. She was banned from the seniors club. She couldn't come in and play cards any longer. And it was a bit of a strange story is that there was allegations made about her bad behavior and throwing around her walker and stuff. And she says none of it is true. I wasn't there. It all stems from the fact that she was accused of going 20 without the five uh, one time. And Mrs. Uh, one of her 
opponent said that she picked up the five in the kitty, so it was a, sort of a funny place for an argument to start. But uh, that's the basics of it, and uh, she's banned. Yeah, it's too yeah. bad. I've, I've seen some weird stuff at the 120 day. <laughs> that's, that's a pretty good one. Okay, well, Patty, listen, thanks for your time. No problem. Anytime. I appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, Bye-bye. Ron. Bye-bye. Uh, should I get back on track here? Yeah, I kind of went a little bit over with the uh, time allotted and hitting the targeted break. But a couple of callers in the queue, Seal Summit, Crown Lads, and Christy Pete to talk about the caring cards for seniors. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number two. Christy, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you this morning? Very well, thanks. How are you? I'm doing great, actually. Um, First of all, Patty, I'd just like to thank you for the opportunity to be on the show again. Um, After we spoke last time, uh, it generated a huge influx of interest and participation in our program, Caring Cards for Seniors. So I'd just like to thank you for that. Terrific. Good to hear. Um, I just wanted to come on today and explain what it is that we do for those who aren't familiar with our program and what we hope to accomplish now in the near future. So for many of us, seniors hold a special place in our hearts, and they've influenced us in one way or another in a very positive way. In our program, we provide handmade cards to seniors on their birthday. So it's a way for us to express to them that they matter and they hold, that they hold tremendous value, and they've made significant contributions to our society. So for us, by providing monthly cards, it's our way to spread sunshine to this wonderful group of people. The second thing, Patty, that we are doing is um, within the seniors' homes, um, the staff offer special events such as bingo, crafting activities, and it's a way for seniors to have social interaction and really lifts up their spirits. So our group has continued since we started to provide small prize items for these events. Um, Another big thing, Patty, uh, that I'd like to share is that uh, we are hosting an annual Valentine's Day campaign. So really, this is going to recognize all the staff that work for seniors. And they, with this program, um, we usually focus on seniors for their birthdays, but Valentine's Day is going to be a way for us to acknowledge the staff and all the great work that they do. Um, so many of the staff that work with seniors on a daily basis, they really are giving, you know, so much to seniors, and they offer so much value. Sometimes they're short staff, they work extra hours, and just really being that person that a senior can interact with. And, you know, sometimes seniors don't have friends or family that come to visit or limited contact. So, again, staff really play a key piece in, you know, just being that person for seniors. Absolutely. I mean, and we, if you think about it, we're asking these staff members to take on something so critically important. It's very much like early childhood educators and staff at the daycares. You know, taking care of our kids, taking care of our seniors. Is there anything more important than that? I think not. Definitely. I totally agree. Um, so we started out, Patty, last year with three seniors' homes. And now we have 25. So as you can imagine, that's a lot of staff um, that we want to recognize through our Valentine's Day campaign. Mm -hmm. So to meet this increasing demand, a show like yours provides us with a huge amount of exposure to reach out to the public. And another key thing is we've been trying to reach out to teachers as well in schools as a way, you know, like 
an opportunity for kids and children to make cards for, sen for seniors and also to make cards for a Valentine campaign. So if any teachers out there are listening and they would like to take part, they are more than welcome to do so, and that would be a huge help for us, especially with our Valentine campaign. It sounds great. So what do, the, what do people need to do? Um, what they need to do, they can reach out to me at Christy underscore Pete at Hotmail.com, or they can reach out to our Facebook page, Caring Cards for Seniors. Sounds terrific to me. Look, I'm glad you've had a big uptick in the numbers of people participating and the number of seniors that are going to be able to get these cards. And I think it's an excellent initiative to also focus in on the staff members who are trying to pro uh, provide a safe, healthy, happy place for these seniors to, to reside in their seniors, their golden years. So, Christy, good to have you on and keep up the good work. Okay, can I say one more sure thing? Sure, you can. Patty? Okay. One exciting thing we have planned for after Christmas, which is going to bring caring cards to a whole new level, is going into seniors' homes, and our volunteers will make cards with seniors for other seniors. So I think that is so special, and it's, a, you know, what a great way for, so heartwarming for volunteers to, you know, see seniors actually having an impact on lives of other seniors. 100%. Thanks for this, Christy. Okay, thank you so much, Patty, for your time. My pleasure. Take care. Okay, bye. All right, bye-bye. Uh, let's keep going. Let's go to line number four. Say good morning to the PC member for Bonavista. That's Craig Party. Good morning, Craig. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thank you very much for taking my call. Happy to do it. And allow me to tip my hat to Christy and her team for spreading sunshine to seniors. And I, like you, would think nothing more important than taking care of our seniors. Good on them. And that's um, great that she's using the open line in order to get the word out. Sure, happy to do it. Yep. Uh, Patty, uh, two things I'd like to talk uh, about. I'd like to uh, hearken back to the SEAL Summit of last week, and i also like to talk about Crown Lands. The SEAL Summit last week was uh, a recommendation of the Atlantic SEAL Science Task Team. It was recommendation number seven of nine. Uh, it was to be a forum that uh, was to, to be facilitated by an independent chair. They wanted uh, someone independent to to run the summit. From my participation in the two days, I think uh, the summit was open. People spoke frankly, and I'm not sure how much different it would be if there were an independent chair. So I, I think it went, there were a lot of voices raised there, and I just want to highlight a few, in my opinion, that stood out. And I know you had a couple of callers that already called, and I won't uh, be redundant in what, uh, in what they said earlier. Uh, Glenn Blackwood was uh, started off on the first day, and Glenn was the co-chair of the uh, Atlantic Seal Science Task Team. There were seven members of it. He was the only one in attendance. He paid tribute to Bob Harley, uh, Hardy as um, you know, very knowledgeable as expertise. He wasn't in attendance, if I got it correctly, because he was disappointed on the lack of action and the lack of a plan because we've been through a lot of discussion and summits and conversations in the past uh, numerous number of decades. But a couple of things that stood out in my mind, Patty, and I just, I just throw out there. Um, Blackwood, in his presentation, had stated that um, the total seal consumption in 2J3KL, and that's coming right down the East Coast from the northern peninsula, or southern Labrador, I would think, uh, coming straight down the Hamilton Bank, straight down past St. John's. So that, that would be covered by 2J3KL. Uh, during the 2014, it was estimated that there were 3.2 million metric tons. 
at the same year, the commercial landings for Newfoundland and Labrador uh, east aided 265,000 metric tons. So in that area of the province, they're eating 12 times the harp seals more than what the commercial fishery, which is valued at $1.3 billion. So if we do the math, which is not totally linear and is not scientific, but the gist and the importance of having an imbalance in our ecosystem is what we lose on economic development in Newfoundland and Labrador with an ecosystem that is out of balance. He, he talked about data deficient, and this is redundant. I know it was mentioned last week about uh, on hooded seals, harbor seals, uh, hooded and, and ringed. He said that the gray seal on the south coast has expanded. Uh, he had mentioned 15,000 in the 60s to close to half a million in 2016. Another note that he added that I wasn't aware of, because every speaking before, I remember uh, Bob Hardy may have mentioned before, too, that gray seals were in our waters for six months. He had declared at the convention that it's, it's eight months, and these are pretty voracious eaters, the seals or the gray seals on the on the south coast. Norwegian science would have them over nine kilograms a day. DFO have them at 6.6. So whatever figure you want to select, then, you know, that is rather significant. The only thing I would say about the uh, SEAL Summit was that Ryan Cleary was right, is that we don't have a plan. We need a plan provincially, and I know that uh, in your commentary we realize that it's not easy it is not easy, but that doesn't negate or provide any reason why we don't have a plan provincially to make sure that we harvest our our quota, which is currently uh, 450,000. Markets can be created. We can do it locally and in those that would be favorable to us, and I think we can do better than what we're doing. Uh, we certainly can step it up with a good plan. And I think that's what I would call on the provincial government. While the federal government will do another study, and that might be number seven in the, in the, in the line of studies that were done, and it's valuable, they're all valuable, but we need provincially a plan to let us get to that 450,000 that we can have and create some markets that would be in friendly uh, environments of which we can move some products. That's the trick. I mean, it just yeah. is. I, there's probably nothing more to be said about this particular issue beyond where's the market. Because if we don't have a market or an expansion of market, then this is all exercise in futility. This will be meetings where winks and nods and handshakes and positive uh, vibes are shared, but then nothing comes of it. So that's the only question for me is where's the market? Yeah, And just two things I add, uh, uh, Patty. Uh, Glenn Blackwood at, a, at the reception at the, uh, at the Mon facility up on Signal Hill, and we had that where the minister spoke and um, and so on. So we were there. Todd Perrin was um, was the chef that was hired in order to have, and he had hors d'oeuvres, he had uh, seal burgers, and boy, the, the the response from those that were in attendance sampling those items was phenomenal. So Glenn Blackwood had asked me at that reception. He said, "Craig, do you do you serve any seal products in the district of Ponta Vista?" Now. If they do, I'm not aware of it, and, and that's that's on me. But I'm not aware of any venue that I went in that we could access seal products. We had a large indigenous uh, representation at the seal summit. Uh, one gentleman had stood up on two occasions. He said he can't find it, 
And he said, in his population, he can't find these seal products. And he said, uh, you know, it's a staple in our diet, trying to get it. So I think we can make inroads. How significant the inroads are, Patty, is to be determined. Mm -hmm. But all I say is that we just need a plan. We need to start and make a plan. And the main thing would be trying to seek that, uh, that balance in the ecosystem. That's number one goal. Number one is to find balance in our ecosystem so that we can grow our commercial fishery to what it should be uh, in excess of $5 billion. Fair enough. And what that balance uh, should be is also better left to someone with a bit more scientific knowledge than me, that's for sure. But uh, anyway, I know you want to talk about something else before we run out of time, Craig. Yes, and the other one, Patty. Uh, thank you. Uh, Crown lands. Crown lands is not a rural issue. No. Uh, you know, it's not. I think we default and say, oh, it's rural. It's in historic parts like Bonavista, Trinity area, Port Rexton, that we would have those areas. It is not. I spoke to a lady or we corresponded email from Corner Brook who's been tied up in the courts for seven years with her farmland in in um, close to, to Corner Brook uh, within there. So it is a big issue. You had Gregory French on, uh, on uh, last week, last Wednesday morning the second day of the SEAL Summit, and Greg is an expert. I would think he's recognized amongst his colleagues as an expert in, in Crown Lands. He proposed two suggestions, and these are coming from the, um, uh, the Lala Society uh, findings and report back in 2015. Two options. Way two of them out, but we've got to have a plan in order to change what we're doing and how we operate Crown Lands. Number Two options he had stated was that uh, he recommend reinstating the squatters' rights, which is what the report stated, a mm -hmm. uh, 20-year continuous period of use and occupation in municipalities 30 years outside, or the other one was a commission of study. Yep. Go around. Remember you mentioned that, to go around, which, which seems pretty arduous and going to be long-term. But nevertheless, like the ceiling summit, we ought to have a plan provincially. If we can call on open line or we can have a conversation and say, well, I don't know what their plan is for Crown Lands. I don't know what the government's plan is for, uh, for SEALs. If we don't, we ought to know and we ought to be engaged in the conversation of an existing plan. And that's what I would call on the government. Let's get a plan for both of those areas, and let's see if we can make a difference with the people that are out there struggling to get uh, rightful land to their, um, to their property. And the last note on that, Patty, the, the minister e equated it to nobody wants a brazen land theft by any squatter. We, we, we don't. That's not what we're talking about here. That's, that's, we got people that lived on property for, like the lady in Corner Brook, over 60, 70 years her and her husband lived on, on the property, which they had clear title to. They thought they had clear title to it. So seven years tied up in the court is an awful long time for that to occur. So I would call upon the provincial government, let's get a plan in those two big areas, and, uh, and let's engage on what the plan and the merits of it. Some people, some families have been working land and or living on land for generations earlier than you were able to even get something like a deed or a title. So, yeah, the squatter's rights makes a really complex situation much more manageable. I thought Greg French was excellent on the show, Talking Crown Lands, and something has to give because it won't just be the diamonds out in Catalina. There's probably going to be dozens and dozens of these types of stories popping up. And it's, you're right to say it's not just a rural issue. Now, 
it has a bigger impact in rural Newfoundland than it might do, say, for instance, in the city center. But yep. it's going to be a problem. And there's ju- it seems patently unfair that the arduous, timely, expensive process for the quieting of titles and all of the other legal shenanigans is the best way forward. It's not for the individual. It's certain, probably not for government either. So I thought Mr. French was uh, spot on with his recommendations. He'd be a good asset for any government initiative and any plan going forward yep. to uh, have him uh, steer the ship. 100%. As far as any plan going forward, it'd be a good good choice. I agree with that entirely. Uh, thanks for this, Craig. Patty, thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Craig Parody, the PC member for Bonavista. And very quickly, regarding Ron's uh, question about, I believe it was Ron who called about old age security, just to clarify, uh, there's nothing immediate where it's a quick jump to 67 from the age of 65, and that's eligibility for old age security. There is a plan for it to change, but it's over an extended amount of time. I think it begins sometime next year, April, maybe April 1st, as Ron pointed out. But it doesn't mean that on April 1st you have to be 67 years of age uh, to be eligible for old age security. The full implementation takes, I think, if I remember correctly, seven full years. So it's very incremental change. Interestingly, when things like pension plans were first established, and I think they originate in Germany, if I'm not mistaken, they uh, selected 65 as the age of eligibility. And it's been widely adopted in many countries where they have things like public pensions. But, of course, the average lifespan then was at least 10 years less than it is today. So I think you're going to see some moves. And it won't be, you know, right overnight you have to be 67 as opposed to 65. There will be incremental change. And that's the one that I understand is happening with old age security. Let's take a break. When we come back, Mike's in the queue to talk homelessness. Don't go away. Join Brian Medor weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Mike. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Welcome to the show. What's on your mind? Well, I'm a bit frustrated here. I'm 62 years old. And I am homeless uh, through no fault of my own. I, uh, there's only certain places that I can go because of my uh, medical background. Uh, the Wiseman Center, I can't go to. And uh, the Gathering Place, I can't go to. Now, uh, I'm on social assistance because I have lung disease, COPD, and I've got arthritis. I can work. I'm not a bum. I can do hobbles. I do several windows around town with a squeegee, Windex, this, that, everything else to make a few dollars. Um... And in the nighttime, I go downtown to George Street and tell jokes. Right. I'm, okay. half, I'm half black, Chris Rock, but I never got slapped. Anyway, uh, the long of the show, Patty, is I've been trying for over three weeks to get to shelter. I was staying at the Connections for Seniors on Prince of Wales Street. And uh, about four or five months into that stay, they said that uh, so-and-so wasn't going to pay for me to stay there any longer. I don't know if it was housing or welfare or what have you. That's fine. And they, they, they should have known full well that uh, on my uh, welfare file, it says that I have to have my own place. I can't be in a bedsitter because of my addictions in the past and so on and so forth, uh, mental health issues. Uh, so they told me to uh, go to the Wiseman Center. That's it. Take your stuff. Goodbye. Go on. Um, the only help that I've had since is from the FACT team, F-A-C-T team at 188 uh, La Road. Uh, my psychologist there works with the team, and they're trying desperately to get me a place to, of my own. Uh, I'm approved for subsidized housing, which uh, allows uh, the $1,200 a month. Now, you should be able to get a nice place in St. John's for that, right? 
well, I'll hesitate to say yes quickly, but you should be able to get adequate housing for 1200 a month, yes. Well, I've been here 17 years, Patty. I came here from Alberta. I was born in Toronto in 1960. So uh, I've been around, right? And and Newfoundland, the reason why I stay here is not because of the weather, but because of the people. They're very kind-hearted and so on and so forth. Uh, All I want is a place to live of my own, right? A decent place, not a a slumlord's place that I've been living in in the past. Now, for $1,200, you should be able to get that. I'm just having problems. Uh, I'm in a place right now on Torbay Road. It's uh, another shelter for, for homeless people. But then again, I'm in a room with two other people, right? And I'm not whining or complaining or on the poor me pity trains and everything else, right? I just would like to have a place of my own. Uh, And I'm having a hard time. The only people that are helping me, like I said, is my psychologist and the FACT team. uh, I called the uh, emergency shelter, and I talked to a lady whose name I won't mention, uh, and she told me that I could go to uh, 40 Gulf Avenue, which is another place, uh, elite place, if you put it that way, uh, for homeless people. It's better than the Wiseman Center or or, uh, the gathering place. Uh, However, the next day when I went there, when I was told that I had a room, uh, the people that lived there of course, they have to mind everybody else's business. They called the police, and I was uh, restrained, handcuffed, and removed from the premises because there was no place for me. Uh, the manager had talked to the supervisor of that building the day before, and everything was arranged for me to go there. And when the police were there that night, uh, he denied that I was uh, supposed, you know, he says, uh, the police officer said, is he supposed to be here? And then the person that runs the place said, no, he's not. So I was left out in the cold again, you know what I mean? Uh, caught out in the rain last night. Uh, pretty much uh, I have a tent. I'm half Indian, half black. I can pitch a tent and live in the woods. But a person, you know, in Canada shouldn't have to be homeless if, if they choose not to. I'm trying hard. It's, there's no good places to rent. No places to rent. I'll take just about, I'll take a closet right now. No, but I but I have to have my own kitchen, my own space, uh, my own living area. You know what I mean, Patty? I'm 62. I'm a midlife uh, crisis or whatever you call it. But that's my main problem right now. You know, I've uh, written many letters to the Telegram over the years to Pam Frampton about uh, the gathering place and and the kindness of people in St. John's and. Uh, uh, this, that, everything else. But the gathering place, unfortunately, has changed, uh, you know, uh, not for the better. And uh, I just, uh, I would just like to go uh, get my own place. Do you have any suggestions? Well, Newfoundland Labrador Housing has a, an emergency housing line that you can call as well. I've called that one, but the thing is, Patty, I'm on, uh, I'm, wa- I'm on the wait list for Newfoundland Housing. It takes a year or more. And I'm on that list for about a year and a half, and I'm not getting any uh, results from that. A friend of mine lives on Gower Street and Newfoundland Housing. There's two rooms there. They're not being occupied. So I don't know if there's anybody that I can call, you know, uh, Newfoundland Housing and talk to somebody, you know, uh, higher up, like a bigwig, and might be able to push some buttons for me here. But uh, I'm a good guy, you know. I, I, uh, you, might, uh, you might have seen me doing windows around town. Um, I'm independent, but uh, I'm a good guy. I've got RNC officers tell me the same thing, and uh, I just want to. I just you have to feel comfortable in a home of your own where you can go in and relax and feel safe. Absolutely, and you know, there's a couple of people that in that world. Uh, there's one is a uh, 
a property management company, another guy owns a couple of different properties. Every now and then when we hear these types of calls, they contact me. If they do, I'll be happy to put them on to you, Mike. So if they contact me, can I share your number with them, for instance? You can. Can I give it to you? Uh, it's on my screen. If it's the one that ends in one nine. Yes. Okay, I got it. Patty, you're a great man now. I'm going to tell you a quick joke, okay? Very quick. i got to go. Okay, I went into the Lotties last week, home of the White Russian downtown. I ordered a White Russian, and the bartender handed me a picture of Donald Trump. I won't laugh. Thank you. I'm the Ron Hines of jokes. All right, Patty. Thank you, buddy. Take good care of yourself. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Rock button. I think I know what button to press at what time. Okay, let's see here. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, how are we doing on the phone, Fonts? All right, we'll be speaking with you. Don't go, uh, don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to Dr. Todd Young. Dr. Young, you're on the air. Hi, good morning, Patty. Welcome to the show. So I should have said that Dr. Todd Young from Main Street Medical in uh, Springdale and also the fellow behind Medicura. What's going on? So, Patty, uh, one of the things that we're uh, highlighting today is the fact that there still remains a cap, I guess, uh, in the number of uh, patients that a physician can see in our province uh, through virtual um, you know, and I guess there's a, there, there are a lot of things that we're hearing from, from patients and the public, uh, increased wait times with 811, uh, increasing demand, uh, with just based on illness, respiratory illness. We've been hearing a lot about that in the media, um, you know, increasing wait times in eMERGE, uh, closures of eMERGE. And then of course we have an increasing number of orphan patients. Uh, we're still having lots of uh, physicians deciding to, to leave the province. Uh, you know, I think at the end, the, the sum of it all is that, uh, you know, this is not a time to be putting barriers up for people to access care. Uh, this uh, <clears throat> this cap, I guess, uh, so there's a cap of 40 patients per physician uh, that you can see virtually. Uh, there's no other cap in any jurisdiction in North America. Uh, this cap was implemented, I think, in August of 2019. And uh, we're just saying that it's time to pull down a cap and if we have physicians that are willing to see more patients in a day and there's a demand for it then why not any understanding of the rationale behind that because you know people are seeing emergency room diversions and all the issues that you mentioned so what would be the hesitation to expand as many people who would like to, to avail of virtual care and doctors are will, willing to perform it so i think at the beginning i mean and and just after the pandemic uh, times were different virtual was a, a bit of a more relative uh, new service. Mm-hmm. I think there was hesitancy amongst, you know, uh, whether it was government or whoever was negotiating, I guess, the, the codes and stuff that uh, we want to, you know, we wanted to try and have a, a handle on how much was being uh, seen virtually versus not virtually. And, you know, I think there's certainly a, a sense of, you know, we don't want healthcare to be all virtual. And so, I, you know, I think there was some regulation type mentality at the beginning to try and do that things have changed a lot in a couple of years (laughs) and uh you know virtual has now been embraced by patients uh patients have had increasing needs and i just think it's it's a poor policy that i don't think meets the demands of our of our residents 
I think you're probably onto something there with the regulatory issue because it reminds me of the story of the Massachusetts-based doctor who was willing to go to Fogo Island. The college said that he wouldn't be considered because he was virtual. He was practicing virtually as opposed to face-to-face interaction with these patients. But that's where mm-hmm. we've got to figure this out. It's either virtual care counts towards your accreditation, virtual care is going to be part of the real offering in the healthcare system, as opposed to what we're seeing now is a reduction simply because of easing, eased worries regarding the pandemic or whatever the case may be. So it makes sense to me that if we have doctors part-time or otherwise willing to offer virtual care, we should be maxing it out because the options are limited. It's either you're on the patient waiting list for a collaborative care spot or you're going to the emergency room where you don't have an option close by where you live. And it makes sense, too. Like I said, I mean, there's lots of respiratory uh, illnesses that are now out there. You know, do you want people sitting in the waiting room of an eMERGE uh, spreading it, or do you want people to be reassured? Most times they don't need antibiotics, of course, so we're very adamant about uh, providing uh, good care that way. But oftentimes it's reassurance, uh, basic things that need to be taken care of. Uh, you know, those those are often quick visits, and, uh, you know, again, we shouldn't be putting up barriers to providing adequate, professional, reliable care. Makes sense to me. Uh, while we have you, Dr. Young, there's you know a lot of families reaching out to me for some help on this front, and I don't know what to tell them because I'm loath to give out medical direction or information that I you know, haven't gotten, say, for instance, from someone like you. But it's the absence of some uh, children's cold and flu medicines on some of the pharmacy shelves. What do you think people should consider when they run into these shortages or they can't find it at all? So we see a number on our platform uh, with the same uh, issues. I mean, I think though most pharmacies, when I actually call them, they, you know, they have a stock that's behind the sh- uh, their their desk or their their that's uh, available that they just need to go and ask. So if it's not on the shelf, what I would encourage parents is, you know, go talk to your pharmacist. There may be a limited supply, and that's why they, you know, have them behind the behind the shelf. So. I would uh, certainly do that. Some people are asking for prescriptions. So some pharmacies are asking, well, if you have a prescription for it, then, uh, you know, we can dispense that to you. Um, you know, it's incredible that these shortages are out there, particularly, like I said, going into the flu season and RSV, et cetera. Uh, but, yeah, I, I just think talk to your pharmacist. Or they, whenever I've called the pharmacy directly, I've always been able to, uh, to, to help the patient. Well, there are people out there who just, you know, like I said off the top, when you have a sick child, it's a very stressful situation. And when you can't find the go-to treatments that you've been used to over the years, it makes it even more stressful. But I appreciate the information. And we'll follow up on the issue regarding a cap on virtual visits because it comes across to me as making a bad situation worse, unnecessarily so. Yeah, and, and, and I, you know, I respect the, the need for regulation uh, you know, in 2019. But again, times have changed. The needs have changed. We're moving forward and uh, it's time to, uh, to to get up to date. Sounds about right. Appreciate the time this morning, Dr. Young. Take care. You Thanks, buddy. Bye-bye. Dr. Todd Young at Main Street Medical, Springdale. Let's see here. Break time. When we come back, the New Harbor AGM is coming up. Fred Woodman's in the queue. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your requests to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let us go. Line number two. Good morning, Fred Woodman. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Great. Thanks for asking. How are you doing? Not too bad. Just wanted to take a minute of your time. I'm going to direct it at residents in New Harbor to let them know that our annual, the LSD annual meeting will be Wednesday night at the Lions Club, 730. Mm-hmm. 
the agenda we've posted on our LSD web or web page on Facebook, and we you know we've got a whole lot going on, and we'd like to get everybody up to speed, answer any questions, and get any input. And of course, we want to bring them up to speed on on what we've got done, and we've had an, an amazingly busy year. And of course, it's going to feed into next year, so we'd like to get some input and direction into the work we'll be doing. Uh, I guess as soon as spring breaks, we got lots of planning to do between uh, between now and then. And of course, we got the normal range of stuff on uh, on our agenda. Everything from from regionalization, our food hamper, our community gardens, trail work we've been doing, some of the roads we've restored around the community this summer. So we're hoping to get a, a you know a good turnout. Uh, actually, we're trying to entice some some ideas and volunteers to, to help us going forward because we got a lot of work to do. Uh, give us some idea about some of the projects you have in the offing. Uh, well, we're we we. We took on a really big one. We've got about a two-acre park. Uh, thank you very much to the Anglican Church here in New Harbor. They donated our, they allowed us to use a, a piece of land that's right adjacent to the church, right directly behind the War Memorial. That's about two acres, so we've cleared that off. Uh, we've got the gazebo moved in. The walking trail is put in. We've got the electrical put into the ground, and we were about ready to put the seed on it to grow the grass, and we ran out of fall. But anyway, that's, that's, that's the biggest one. Our second big one was uh, Anderson's Cove Road. And for people who don't know, Anderson's Cove Road is probably one of the oldest roads on the Trinity Bay shore. It connects the towns of New Harbor, the communities of New Harbor and Dildo, along the salt water. And actually, Anderson's Cove is our Capelin Cove. That's, that's where we go to get our, our Capelin. So that, I'd argue now that that road is the best road in New Harbor. It's probably better than it was, whatever it was. I mean, you could drive a Formula One race car. We put a new top. We ditched it, uh, and we and actually we did it jointly with Dildo. And I got a, a big shout out to the Dildo Brewery who uh, who sponsored, uh, who who don made a, a great donation towards that. And we just finished actually. We had the uh, the eight kilometer run for beer. Or we didn't. The brewery did. And New Harbor and Dildo uh, sponsored a Gatorade table and whatnot on that, and and uh, had lots of volunteers to help. So people, so people didn't get lost running around. But it was a great, it was a great day. We had a wonderful day for it. That was last Saturday. Uh, we've got our food hamper where we just, it's, it's just a, 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 I guess you call it a, a self-serve food bank. It's a little tiny one, but people donate and put food there. And if people need to go there, they go there. Next to that, there's like a little games place if you want to go and get a game, you know, Monopoly or Checkers, or if you want to put a checker game there and somebody want to borrow it and bring it back, books and things like that. That's there. Uh, we've got a bunch of storyboards put up. Uh, what else have we done? There's been so much going on, Patty. It's hard to keep. It's been hard to keep up with. I'm sure I'm forgetting something. No, that's all. Our, uh, last question before I let you go, Fred. You know, you and I have talked regionalization, and certainly the uh, LSDs have, because they were left out of the consultations and the working groups, of course you have lots of questions, and I think a lot of residents of LSDs, I mean, this is just a generalization, which I shouldn't be making, but I think they're, by and large, opposed to the concept. What's the conversation actually feel like in New Harbor? Are people even willing to talk about regionalization, or is it something being dismissed out of hand? I... That's a tough one. Here's what I think, and here's what I know. I, th I think had we been approached in the beginning, this would be going smoother. I think uh, regionalization, because there's, there's 4 million. I've looked it up. I, I could write 12 books on what does regionalization mean. Regionalization, as resembling anything that was in that report, is a no-go. That will be World War III. That, that will be World War III here in New Harbor. 
They will fight that tooth and nail. I'm telling you, I'm out every day. I'm, I, I live here. I've been here 62 years. They are adamant that they are not losing their LSD. They're not, they're not losing it. Now, I mean, I'm sure if the government wants to come and take it, they will. But that will be, that will be ugly. Uh, we're not giving up our assets. We do not want another layer government. We're not going to give up our identity. We're not going to become part of it. I mean, we just spent a year putting a park in that we're not going to let that get run out of Arnold's Cove or be part of one of 22 different groups where we may have representation or we're not. That's not happening. So if, if the face of it is anything resembling that, it's going to be World War II. We're planning around that now. We're getting the legal advice. Now, that's, that would be part of our bigger group because our Upper Trinity South uh, uh, you know, coalition of, of LSDs and we're just adamant. So we'll, if, if we go down, it'll be swinging. It's going to be uh, fascinating to watch from the outside looking in. And that's why, you know, having conversations with people like yourself is helpful for me because it won't have a big impact on me. I live in the east end of town. So well, that's why. You're wrong. Well, See, this is the false information that we were fed. And, and, what does that mean? and why we're not talking about it anymore because the more people, and, and I thank you for that, the more people who ask questions, the more ugly this gets. You are, I don't know if you are involved or not, but I mean... Involved the report, with what? The report, for example, well, but, but, well, you may have, your family may have property in New Harbor. You're impacted. You may have a cabin down in Tiranova. Oh, no, impacted. I just said... No, no, Fred, Pearl, You're going Fred, to get taxed. Fred, right? this is a tax grab. Yeah, Fred, what I said was it doesn't impact me directly, me personally, like me, the, the person I am, where I live. I don't have these implications that you're thinking that out some people in St. John's might have. I just said it doesn't impact me directly, which is why I said it's helpful for people like you who it would yeah. impact to come no, on the show. And, and, you're, and you're right. I just used by example that, that like, if you read the report, they'll, they'll talk about the, you know, the large towns and, and, and they will not be taking part. But I can assure you, I talked to lots of people in St. John's whose families' places in New Harbor, Dillo, or oh, Old sure. Shop, or whatever, yeah. they are going to be impacted. Uh, they, well, you know, they will. T they told us, for example, or they'll say there's only 10% of the population. Well, that's wrong if you're going to exempt. I don't know what the population of St. John's, Mount Pearl, CBS, Corner Brook, and all that, but it's probably three-quarters of the population. So if you exempt three-quarters of the population, it's not 10%, it's 30 or 35% that are going to be impacted. People who own cabins, who own family land, who own this. And it's a tax grab because they've yet to tell us what we are getting. So we're going to get nothing except a bill. And if you're living in New Harbor, and I'm, I'm here, I can't speak for other communities, I can speak for a lot of them, but I can't speak for them, or I shouldn't speak for them. But if you're sitting here today looking at how much your life is costing you today versus two years ago, whether that's your heating bill, because we don't have them all for people to walk in and get warm, so whether that's your heating bill if you got oil, and a lot of our seniors do have oil, or whether your food bill has gone up 30 or 40%, you can't get to a doctor and now all of a sudden you're going to get a bill in the mail for a service you're never going to receive or you don't want. And that's not going to <laughs> I'm going to tell you now, whatever world they're in, they think that that's going to be smooth. I, I hope I'm around to see it. I'm going to tell you, I've got, I've got women here, I'm going to, and honest to God, I've got women here who are 80 who are ready to put up blockades. Not going to happen. Now, hopefully it drags out another year and we can make an election issue. Well, it probably will be, because this yeah, is not no. going to happen overnight. By the no, time exactly. we go back to the polls, this will still be in the conversation uh, portion of the, the whatever this transition is, potentially, down the line. Fred, I appreciate the time. Anything else okay. quick before One I take another word, call? I hopefully it becomes the issue on the Trinity Bay Shore. There will be no other issue to be discussed on the Trinity Bay Shore except regionalization. 
as it pertains to that report. I'm sure there's versions or whatever, I'm, you know, but, but I mean, we're not part of that conversation. And I'm fully, I fully believe that it's still carrying on the way it was in that report. So we're just waiting our time. We're just biding the time, but we're ready. Thanks, Fred. Have a good one, Patty. You too. All the best. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Uh, before we get to the news, let's go to one. Paul, you're on the air. Hi, good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Hey, Dad, it's going to be short and sweet this morning. Uh, I just want to touch up on the $500 benefit checks that are coming out this week. Yeah. I know you alluded to that last week as well as your newsroom. Patty, I, I, I called them this morning, the finance department, just for, so your listeners know that there's no direct deposit, Patty. It's all being sent out in the form of checks. Yep. And so people to be wary of that because... There's going to be, I'm sure there's going to be other people out there looking to get the checks too, if you know what I mean, Patty. Yeah, for for folks who get the door-to-door delivery, that's a fair concern. You're not the first person to make that point to me this morning or in the last couple of days. You may indeed see people who are wandering around neighborhoods checking mailboxes. Now, the check will actually be no good to them because they're going to have to try to cash it somewhere, which hopefully that won't be possible because you won't have an ID to match the name on the check. But you're right. They're all coming out in paper checks in the mail. Why there's not the opportunity for direct deposit like when this was first announced there was mention of direct deposit because they said if you had your taxes filed and if you had direct deposit set up with CRA they'll be able to put it in your account that very quickly went away and said that it's all going to be paper checks and we don't even know like they say there's 392,000 new Flanders and Labradorians will get some check whether it be 250 bucks or 500 bucks but not everyone's going to get it not everyone's filed their taxes and you're 100% right to let people know it is going to be paper in the mail and uh, just to mention too, Patty, the lady also mentioned. She said, she said people that are on the lowest income will be getting theirs first, Patty. So that's something else. So maybe the people can just keep that in mind. Yeah, the five uh, hundreds will be out the door first, but I think they're all going out the door within twenty four hours. Yeah, anyway. I asked her. I said, now are they going are going to be mailed out this week? She said, no. You should get it. Everybody should get it this week. Yeah. So that's good news. Yep. Anyway, everybody, thanks for your time. Thanks for yours, Paul. Thanks, buddy. All the best. Bye bye. Yeah, they are coming out in paper. It's a fair qu- uh, fair question to ask as to why couldn't they figure out a direct deposit if you've got anything set up with the government of Newfoundland or the government of Canada for a direct deposit? Would that have been an option? But apparently not. They're coming in the mail. Keep your eyes peeled for your letter carrier. Let's take a break. When we come back, still plenty of time to speak with you. Don't go away. Join Brian Medor weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let us go. Line number one, say good morning to Dr. Kathy Balsam and Dr. Jeremy McDonald at the Medication Therapy Clinic at Memorial University. Good morning to you both. Good morning, Patty. Good morning. Happy to have you on. Right off the bat, uh, congratulations, Dr. McDonald. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Welcome to the show. What's the topic of choice today? Yeah, so I guess we wanted to jump on your show and really just emphasize uh, World Diabetes Day. So today, November 14th, was uh, was going to say diagnosed, (laughs) but was um, certainly uh, recognized across the world as World Diabetes Day. And they actually picked today because it is the Canadian scientist who discovered insulin, Dr. Banting. It's his Mm -hmm. birthday. So in his honor, today is World Diabetes Day. Cool. Uh, It's a a perfect day to pick for it. You know, diabetes, right off the bat, what's the prevalence? Because we hear a lot of talk about diabetes and the coverage of test strips and the cost of insulin and all these types of things. How prevalent is diabetes in the province? It's actually quite prevalent, Patty, and we actually have one of the highest prevalences compared to the other provinces in Canada. 
So when we look at it in 2022, 35% of our population is living with diabetes. That includes those that are diagnosed and undiagnosed, as well as those that are considered pre-diabetic. So at that, you know, risk range of developing diabetes based on their sugar levels. So let's talk about the differences, because if, if someone ha who's listening has diabetes, they know, they understand the conversation, they understand the illness. Talk about the different types. Yeah, so with diabetes, we have type 1 diabetes, which is an insulin-dependent uh, type diabetes. Typically, you know, those individuals are diagnosed uh, at younger ages, typically like children or teenagers, but uh, sometimes there can be a late onset of type 1 diabetes. And these are individuals that their body's not making the insulin, so they have to take, um, you know, insulin themselves to, to manage their diabetes. And then we have type 2 diabetes. Sometimes people call this, uh, quote-unquote, adult diabetes, but you can be any age, really, to, the, to develop type 2 diabetes. And it's when your body um, becomes a bit resistant to the effects of the insulin that your body makes. And so these individuals may have to go on, you know, oral medication, um, you know, make adjustments to their diet, exercise, um, and in some cases may have to go on insulin as well. Yeah. So, you know, people have issues with coverage of test strips and all those types of things, as I mentioned. So what should the general public consider when they talk about lifestyle, diet, and otherwise, if they're not diabetic at this moment in time, but the potential to have that diagnosis is somewhere in the future, possibly? Yeah, no, for sure. So, I mean, always encouraging people to have their yearly follow-up with their physicians and just making sure that they're being screened for diabetes is really important. And asking what that number is, you know, and what is the risk? Are you considered pre-diabetic? Because, again, a lot of people don't know. Um, and, you know, everyone, of course, should be watching um, their physical activity and certainly trying to do as much as they can. Also, of course, we know we're a little bit of a meat and potatoes province, so we don't often have a whole lot of fruits and vegetables, particularly given the cost of food these days. But that is really important. So looking at your diet is very, very important. And also smoking status is quite, quite important. So if you combine the cardiovascular risks of having diabetes with those of also being a smoker, they can be quite, you know, detrimental and you're stacking those odds against you. So certainly kind of controlling all of those lifestyle factors is very, very important. Okay. And so what are the risks for people who do have a diagnosis and they don't adjust their lifestyle to accommodate the diagnosis of diabetes? Some of the complications that can happen. Yeah, there, there are many complications with, um, you know, diabetes, especially if it's uncontrolled. Um, it's, it's really important to control your diabetes because you put risk of, um, you know, heart disease is, is one complication. There's also risk um, to damaging your kidneys as well as other issues like um, pertaining to your eyes. So it's, it's certainly important for people with uh, diagnosed diabetes to get regular, regular eye exams just to make sure that everything's going well with their eyes. There's also risks with uh, different types of nerve damage that you can also experience um, with uh, diabetes that becomes worse, especially if someone's um, you know, not taking um, steps to, to keep their diabetes under control. Okay, and now that I have a couple of pharmacists uh, with me this morning, there's lots of talk about, you know, the shortages of, of amoxicillin. And so many people who go into a doctor's office, whether it be with the flu or other bacterial infections, talking about the need for an antibiotics. And then there's the shortage of cold and flu medicine for children in particular. What's your advice to folks out there? My goodness, I mean... <laughs> Certainly, I mean, it's easy to get down about it and you, you kind of feel defeated, but there's always other options and speaking to your pharmacist about other options that are out there is very, very important. You know, we, we can often work together to come up with a solution and really determine whether or not we need to, you know, use antibiotics and what would be the next best thing. 
because we have seen a reduction in the amount of antibiotics being prescribed in this province. It was way out of whack some years ago. So I think we're getting that somewhat under control. But what about the parents of the child with the cold? And they go to the store and they're used to buying the cold and flu remedy from Tylenol or what have you. What are alternatives or a smaller dosage of adult medicine? What do you say to folks? Because I'm hearing it all the time. Yeah, I guess, Patty. And as a mom myself, I have a two-year-old. So, I mean, I don't think there's been a a period of time in the last couple of months that we haven't had (laughs) some sort of cold or flu medications that lasted very long. But, you know, when it comes to fevers for children, I think as parents, we want to make sure that they're as comfortable as possible. But making sure, you know, we're only treating that fever, um, you know, we don't necessarily need to give something every four to six hours if the fever is breaking. Um, That's really important. You can talk to the pharmacist about trying a chewable option if that's available. You can also potentially get compounded um, fever medications done up by certain specialty pharmacies. And often we don't like to treat some symptoms uh, with medications like we would if we were adults because some of the cough and cold medications are really just not safe in children. And one of the best remedies is actually just using a humidifier in their room while they're sleeping to kind of loosen up any um, congestion in their chest and allow them to kind of cough up whatever bacteria is living down there. I appreciate you both making time for the program. Would you like to add anything else this morning while we have you both? Yeah, so, uh, you know, just with it being World Diabetes Day, we, we certainly want, uh, you know, individuals in the province to, you know, make sure that they're doing steps to try to reduce the risk of developing diabetes, but also taking a holistic approach. So whether that be chatting with a dietitian with regards to ways to manage their diabetes with diet, um, but also getting a medication review just so that, you know, uh, diabetes, there's lots of evidence and, and new medications that are coming to market. And, um, you know, certainly it's good to get your medications reviewed. Maybe you've been on them for, you know, 10 plus years and there's newer medications available that might be better suited for you. So um, here at the Medication Therapy Services Clinic, we do offer medication reviews and anyone in the province can avail uh, of our services. A quick one from a listener. This is a good question. Sweeteners like Sugar Twin as an alternative to sugar, are they good or bad for people living with diabetes? Yeah, I think for diabetes, they have been shown to be better than than your regular kind of white table sugar, right? They don't have the same major um, increase in your glycemic index after you have them. So certainly safer, of course, if we can, we, we don't know long-term studies on a lot of these products, unfortunately. And I think, you know, as a pharmacist, I don't have all of the insight into that as maybe a dietitian would. Um, but certainly, you know, I think a better option for baking and, you know, in your tea or coffee, um, but potentially, you know, trying to avoid them would also be a good suggestion. Appreciate this this morning. Thank you. All right. Thanks. Take good care. Bye-bye. Dr. Kathy Balsam, Dr. Jeremy McDonald from the Medication Therapy Clinic at the School of Pharmacy at Memorial University. Let's take a break. When we come back, Mark wants to talk about what's happening in and around Livingstone Street. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM Morning Show. This is Open Line on VOCM. And welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Mark Wilson. You're on the air. Hey, Patty. How are you today? Very well, thanks. How are you doing? Good. Can you hear me all right? Not too bad at all. Go ahead. Excellent. Uh, another beautiful day outside. Um, this is For me, this is garlic planting weather. But uh, unfortunately, I've had to interrupt that I, 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 with uh, some neighborhood issues that we're experiencing here on Livingstone Street. And they're public safety issues. They are health-related issues. So it, it sort of fits with your trend of health care. This morning, uh, and uh, also CSSDs uh, is the main sort of um, is the main department in the provincial government that could fix some of the issues that 
we're having. This is a bit of an update from my most recent call with you a couple weeks ago there, Patty. Okay, what's happening? Well, basically, um, we had, in the summer, we've, we've had a number of uh, public safety issues. Uh, I think I outlined this in previous calls, but we had a essentially a, a house that was selling crack. Um, the RNC went in. Um, they searched it, seized, and um, that slowed things down a little bit. But it's it, it's been an ongoing situation for about two years, and I'm sure this is similar to some of the issues that are ongoing in the rest of the city and the rest of the province and the rest of the, the country, really. Um, you know, I see Rabbit Town's, Rabbit Town's issues, and, and uh, we're – we're seeing that, you know, there's a lot of similarities. Um, this house in particular is close, is very close to my house. Um, and I've asked uh, that CSSD to, to uh, consider that this person, if they're allowing organized crime to come into their house and live with them, supported by CSSD, by the provincial government, rent, I'm assuming, is supported by the province, that maybe this is not a suitable situation. I've asked that both the health minister, sorry, all, all three now, the health minister, the public safety minister, and John Abbott to consider uh, providing a supportive housing situation for this gentleman so this doesn't in, uh, affect our community so much. And I think it's probably happening all over the city, Patty. It's, there's no coincidence that if we can provide safe, adequate, healthy housing, we deal with some of these issues as opposed to relying in full on the police. It's kind of the point I try to make a fair bit on the show. People say, well, you're just a social justice warrior. No, I'm talking about how we spend money, where we spend money, where we get the best outcomes. And a safe roof over your head, maybe away from some of the worst influences in your world, can absolutely make things better for the individual, for that neighborhood, for the police, for public safety, and cost us less money. I don't know why that makes someone the insult that is intended by calling me a social justice warrior. Just numbers for context, one more time. There's 1.2 staff members at Corrections Canada for every single inmate in a federal institution. It costs on the average $190,000 per inmate, man inmate, in the country in a federal institution. About 225000 per woman in a federal institution. Don't you think we could do better with that money? We can definitely do better, Patty. Right? And that's not uh, being a warrior. That's being a pragmatist, or at least I'm trying to be. The less people that are involved in the criminal justice system means that the public is probably more safe. I don't know how that is constitutes socialism or you're a lefty or you're bleeding heart or something. No, if we all have the same hopes for safer communities, well, let's talk about how to make them safer, not how long we can put someone in jail. There's always going to be a need for police. There's always going to be a need for penitentiaries. It's just how we look at it, how we utilize the funds available to, for the collective outcome of better enhanced public safety. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, my motorcycle was stolen on the weekend. I recovered it, but it, it's just gotten so bad. Uh, I, you know, recounting that story to other folks, I, I've heard so many stories recently of crime. And I think, uh, I think housing has a lot to do with it. I, I want to sort of highlight one of, the, one of the missing pieces, one of the gaps in the provincial system. Um, so my understanding is the gentleman that lives in this house that has caused a lot of issues in our neighborhood is supported by community supports. Um, he has social workers, but are these social workers going to find him a house or does he have to find it himself? Uh, the landlord, uh, currently he's trespassing in the house that he's been removed from, he's been evicted from, but the landlord won't do anything about it. 
And the, there is no incentive for the landlord to do anything about it because they get a, a constant check every month from the government. And that's a dream for landlords that don't have to do anything to keep their house up. Like, uh, I mean, there hasn't been windows in this house for about three or four, five months. Um, and, uh, and so if you don't have to do anything, you're still getting a check. How is that not the best possible scenario for a landlord that just doesn't care about the rest of the neighborhood? Fair enough. Fair enough, of course. And, you know, akin to the conversation regarding the issues in Happy Valley Goose Bay. Yes, we need the immediacy of police presence and police interaction at the exact same time to working towards the long-term solutions, whether it be with housing or enhanced social services or whatever the case may be. But the police have a job to do that deals with the short term. The governments have a big job to do when it comes to root causes and long term. Absolutely. Uh, ha- housing, harm reduction, ed- uh, addictions, mental health supports. I think, you know, I think it's time that the, that the communities across the city, at least, at the very least, that are experiencing these similar issues get together, Patty. I think it's time for us all to get together. And I'm happy to speak with anybody. Um, if, you know, you can have uh, one of your producers share my my information if anybody wants to call the station uh, i'm not sure if you do that or if oh yeah if you uh, if you don't mind us sharing your number with people with similar concerns your neighborhood or otherwise we're happy to share why not absolutely and and i've called this morning i've called the premier's office so i'm, I'm waiting for a call back from premier fury or one of his assistants or somebody in his office to to let me know uh, or minister abbott's office to let me know that this issue is going to be dealt with today that they're going to find him housing so that our community can rest for a little while, because it's been two years, Patty. Keep us in the loop, Mark. Thank you, sir. Have a wonderful day. The same to you. Talk again soon. Thanks, Patty. All right, you're welcome. Bye-bye. All right, last word this morning goes to line number one. Richard, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. I'd like to um, uh, relate to you my experience with Crown Land. Go ahead. Um, It covers a period of seven years, and cost me $20,000, if you can believe that. If you're telling me, I can believe it. So what exactly is going on? What happened? Okay. The subdivision, uh, first of all, the subdivision, there was an issue with it by the developer that was purchasing the land. And the administrator of the Supreme Court handled the the deal between uh, Hare in Massachusetts and the developer here in Newfoundland to finish the deal. And uh, the local improvement district approved the subdivision, and I would assume through municipal affairs. Okay. So you buy a lot, and the lawyer goes through and does a title search and what have you, and lead you to believe that you have clear title, which is a lie because you don't. You find out years later that it's crown land. So how do you have a clear title to the land when you don't? The next thing, years later, I find out when I was going to buy another lot in the same subdivision, the lawyer suggested I not buy it because it was crown land and you could get into a conflict. So I thought, well, 
is all the land in the subdivision and Crown Land. So I go to Crown Land, and they wouldn't tell you because they said it's a privacy issue. So the lawyer said, go back, get aerial photos and cadastral drawings, and make an application. Okay, I do that. I get the drawings. I pay for the drawings. I make application, everything. So the lawyer says, make the application now for a quit claim deed, which I did. Okay? Mm -hmm. I put the application in, and I get a letter from Crown Land that says that uh, you'll have a file made up. It'll take about a year. So anyway, I get a letter that I have a file, and I ask them for an update. Oh, they said, that's just your file. It's going to be another three years before we get to it. So that brings us to 10 years. Well, no, that's three years now, right? I thought you said you've been dealing with it for seven years. No? Yes, I have been. But I'm telling you, one year to get the file open, three years before they start to look at the file. Okay? So now you're up to four years. So anyway, they look at the file, and you ask for a quick claim deed. They come back, and they say that uh, you no longer qualify under squatter's rights. Now, that kind of upsets you because, number one, I don't consider myself a squatter. I paid for the land. I had a professional lawyer tell me it was clear title. So for them to come back now and say I don't qualify as a squatter, I never asked for squatter's right. Right. I asked for a quick claim deed. So I go back and I start arguing with them and whatever, and they say, well... That's all we can do. You, the only thing you, that option you have is to get a lawyer. So I go and see the lawyer, and he says, well, you have an option. You can go to the Supreme Court and ask for uh, a clearing of titles. But remember, Crown Land can make a submission, and if they win, you'll have no appeal. So then, well, what is the other option? Because I have, we have three children on the mainland, and I'd like to get this issue settled. No doubt. If something happens to my wife and I, and, and uh, they want to sell the property. So anyway. Just uh, because of the time on the clock, Richard, and we might have to pick this up another day. It's 12.01 and change. But uh, I'll give you the last uh, few seconds here to wrap it up, and we can absolutely talk again another day. Go ahead. Okay, we'll talk another day. But anyway, um, to buy this land at current price that I paid $6,000 for in 1973 would cost $300,000 now. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, where in the hell is somebody 80 years old and not working going to come up with this money? Short answer is they probably can't. Uh, Richard, I wish we had more time, sir, but we're out of it for this morning, but you're welcome to come back and join us again another day. 
Okay, fine. Thanks, Patty. My pleasure. Take good care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, we are indeed out of time, but we will pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, Fonz King, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.